Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, whatever time zone you're in anywhere around the world. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour, general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we uh, do our best to answer audience-submitted questions. The second hour is typically a deeper dive into a topic, but today we are doing two hours of general question and answer. So it's a great day to ask your questions of our expert panel. Hopefully you know the process and can get your questions into Mokana. Uh, we would look forward to taking care of them. Uh, Mitch, what's our first question for today? First one in from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, guys. Pushing graphics out of a PC to five different monitors. Would you install a DeckLink Duo 2 in the PC or use an external Sonnet box? And Mr. Jason, oh, excuse me, I thought I jumped no, into a right. little bit too there. We're going to get to Jason first and then Courtney, and I'm getting a little slow with my interface. So, no, Jason. No problem. Specs Ryzen 9 5900X and AMD Radeon RX 6700 XT. All recommendations are appreciated. Okay, now Jason can help us. Uh, well, if you're going to be using the same PC, if the question is PC with a Sonnet box or or an internal card, I don't think it's going to make a huge difference. Uh, externalizing it is usually not the way to speed the system up, so it really just comes down to whether or not it's it's fast enough to push the pixels that you're asking it to push. And Courtney. Well, I'm a bit confused if it's um, whether he's pushing the same image to all five uh, monitors, five different monitors, or are they different images in different uh, video windows? Uh, if they're different images, then you're going to need a sonnet box. If you're just feeding the uh, output of the PC to five monitors, you can just use a HDMI DA uh, or uh, convert the HDMI to uh, SDI and an SDI DA and send the uh, five outputs of that DA to the five monitors and convert them if they're SDI monitors or or send out five uh, HDMIs. Now, if you're doing a video wall or something where there are five images that have to be in sync, uh, then, yeah, then I would say the um, mm, Sonnet box may be your best way to go in deck leaks. Okay. Uh, Mike, hopefully that got you the answers that you're looking for. Let's head off to the next question. Next one in for Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. What are the pros and cons of using NDI to Apple TV from an iPhone camera to ATEM versus using the HDMI dongle direct, trying to weigh the latency versus freedom in home studio? Guy's going to start us off, Guy. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you are going to get a little bit of latency because NDIHX is uh, a compressed format that's going to require a decompression on the other side. So you're going to get a couple of frames. So luckily, this question came in early enough that I was able to kind of run around and, and set it up. So uh, on the left here, you have, let's see, this one is the iPad going through a uh, Blackmagic uh, ATEM direct with the dongle. So you can see the latency should be super fast. And the other one is NDIHX camera. That's my phone going through an Apple TV into Sienna. So it's pretty tight. I mean, tighter than I would have thought that it would be. So again, the one on the left is direct connect and the one on the right is ND an NDI camera. So they're pretty, pretty dang close. Uh, you know, you do have to worry about battery life when you're uh, connected. Um, uh, to NDI because it, it is a hog. It will, it will, that app will hog it down. So uh, direct connect, you can uh, plug in, a, um, you know, into that dongle. If you get the right dongle, you can get one that has a, an additional port to charge while you're, while you're using it. So just depends on what you want to do. Slightly dizzy trying to figure out the offset between those two. David Paskin. 
Yeah, forgive me if I'm misunderstanding the question, but I don't think you need NDI. You can just airplay. So I'm now, I've got my iPhone up and I'm just airplaying to my Apple TV and it's coming into my ATEM and then I'm able to throw it into the show. All right. Well, so that gives you a couple of options, Morgan, on ways to approach this. Uh, ping us back and let us know what worked for you. Uh, oh, Alex wants to weigh in on this. Alex? All I was going to say is if, you ever, if you've seen any of my, um, when I'm jumping on the cooking show, the handheld is a, is a f iPhone that is going to, as David said, using uh, just AirPlay to get to the, um, uh, to the Apple TV, which is then plugged into an ATEM. It is, uh, uh, it, I can feel it like it's just a couple frames behind, but it's it's almost instant. So it's it's a satisfying way to get yeah. content. In. I mean, I wouldn't do it if I was pointing that camera at my mouth. <laughs> so, but what I'm doing for it is I'm 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 looking at something close up, and I'm not having to intercut it with other cameras that see that see my mouth that would see sync. There you go. That makes sense. All right. Hopefully, Morgan, that gives you uh, some information to help you get things underway. Let's go to the next question. David Brady from New York, New York has a question. When playing back clips into an event, what is the general role against offset for backup? Is it a general feel for the content and how often has it saved your bacon if ever needed? And Alex will start us off here. Yeah, so I, I'm assuming that this means playing playing back a, a backup a file at the same time as the uh, um as the as the main one just in case something goes wrong we used to do that pretty often and we kind of stopped doing it because it added a certain layer of complexity that things and we ended up having more anomalies from the our software and, and hardware tended to be so stable we always had a backup to play something but and and again on some of the higher profile stuff we still do it but it just takes a lot of extra setup to make sure that you don't accidentally you know, get audio, you know, I think that we have to make sure that we have all of the people involved ready to do it. You can't just do it on a small crew. We had a larger crew with someone who really knows, and we've done a lot of rehearsal, and we know that where that is and all those other pieces. I think that that's been the key is to not not do it when we're not, when we're not fully staffed for it and not fully ready for it because it was easy to have somebody accidentally leave something up and then you get, um, oftentimes you get something either best case scenario is just really loud <laughs> and worst case scenario it uh it is uh, a little off and you get you get a little bit of that uh what we just heard with you know in the last question yeah go ahead Mitchell yeah I, I, a lot of times I'll just uh, back count it like five seconds uh so that we can verify that it is indeed playing has a two beep that's when we bring the audio up um and if we need to engage some kind of a backup uh, plan we know that at least have five seconds to decide Fair enough. Let's head to the next question. Brian Carney in Wheaton, Illinois, has a question. My company wants to deploy tablets, 12 to 15, at an upcoming on-site trade show. Each tablet would display discrete video content, local files not streaming, next to each of our products at the booth. Can you recommend hardware and software and security? John Preto will start us off here. John? You know, outside of the outside of playing videos back, which should be relatively straightforward, but what you know, in the old days of the trade show, the before times, they used to rent you that that card collection box that used to sit there and you had to grab somebody's badge and scan it in and then you'd get a CSV file at the end of the at the end of the um, trade show, which was ridiculous. We created forms. And so we would capture people's email addresses right on our devices. At that time it was phones. But then all of the documentation that they wanted, including videos, we could send via device. And so we would input a form 
or select one of many forms, put their email address in, and it would automatically send them the information directly to their email. Jason. I would uh, rent or lease the iPads, and there are a lot of companies that do that, and then put them in single app mode. There's a way that you can actually just lock them into a, a video mode that is either repeating ad nauseum or, you know, will just come back to play, and then you're just using the regular uh, video app to, to, to just play whenever somebody presses play. I think that's the easiest way to do this. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, it, I guess the question is, is, is it playing something that is um, interactive or is it just playing videos? So if it's, you're absolutely right. I think that I would probably go down that path. Um, the, you know, Android has some solutions for that because it's a lot cheaper to get that many. You can rent, you can rent a bunch of iPads or, or, rent, or buy some Androids to do that because it's a pretty simple process. If they're just playing out, uh, we, we did this, we, we didn't do it. We worked with a team that did it. And they had 30 of these little monitors that were out there. And what they did is they didn't make them tablets. They had NUCs. And they had NUCs all in the back um, so that they could get to them. And they all just ran up into that into that um, display or into multiple displays. And the NUCs ran everything. And that was a, I thought that that was a pretty efficient way to, to make that actually happen. So I would think about the, it, it's just you, having all of the devices out there, if someone figures out how to, bang on it, have an interactive screen unless you need it. And that's what I don't quite understand is if they're just going to be looping video content, um, you, you, I would put it in the back. If they're going to be interacting with the content, I'd put it in a tablet. Mitchell? We were uh, selling our uh, uh, production wares at a booth, and we also had Microsoft in with us, and they were pushing the uh, the Surface. And we did something like that where we just had our monitor that was playing our demo uh, looping through the uh, the all the service units so people could pick them up and look closely. So that worked well. And that was, I guess, a streaming solution. And we weren't worried about security because they belong to Microsoft. And Courtney. Yeah, if you go to any of the auto shows these days, they all have uh, a tablet of some form. Usually it's an Android tablet, I think. Uh, that they And they just have somebody write some custom software that has a menu interface, kind of like a DVD player. It used to be in the old days. Uh, with a menu, uh, so you know more information or specifications, or you know, so that the user can start at the basic homepage for that product and then dig further if they want to, and then they the software can lock out the home button so that you can never get out of the app itself uh, by touching anything on the screen unless you know the secret code or where to tap, and just write some custom code to to link to the videos and uh, take you back to the homepage when they're done playing. And Jason Bates to finish this up. Yeah, and along those lines, um, you the single app mode will allow you to lock to any single app. And if you don't want to have to write code, but want some sort of like you know kind of touch um, interactivity, Keynote is a really great way to do this. You can link you know from slide to slide and have videos and um, and just basically make it inescapable, so that you know when you hit the home button, it basically just starts at the first slide. And Hershey, do you want to get in on this? Sure. Uh, if you're looking at a hardware solution and you might want to go down the Android path, the Samsung tablets are excellent at this because, for one, they make great screens. So if you are trying to show off something that might be screen particular and um, how they do their saturation and, and such that, it might be a good idea if you're going in that Android realm to pick up the S series or even an A series and Depending on what you want to do, how Courtney explained, you could lock the screen in. So it'll be like a little uh, sandbox where <clears throat> until you put in the password. 
you won't be able to uh, get out of that app or website or whatever application that you lock your screen into. And I think you were talking in terms of security, probably about the software issues of making sure that nobody can get into it either via Wi-Fi or Bluetooth and mess with your content. If you were thinking about the physical security of actual tablets in a public space or something like that, there are a lot of companies who do that kind of thing. I've been kind of fond of the RAM products. Uh, they're actually come out of the automotive industry and they're, they make the mounts that go into most uh, public safety vehicles, at least in my experience. And they make a lot of um, lockdown make sure that this is not takeable in a retail situation kind of mounts. And there are other companies I'm sure do the same thing, but there's plenty of products out there for that. Let's go to the next uh, next topic. Next uh, question in from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Has there been any thought about cooperating with the university to bring students into the office hours crew for learning? Alex. Definitely open for it. Um, you know, the, the there's a couple things about it. Uh, we, I would probably think about having them partner with us on specific projects. So, Let's have them, uh, like we're going to cover something. We, we can have a couple of camera crews or a couple of people work on it. Having them work on it on a longer term basis, we'd have to think about a little bit. And, and this is the reason for this is that one of the big values of office hours is that, that our crews are persistent. You know, there, there's a slow movement through it, but there's lots of people learning how to do it and they're going to be around. And so if the students, you know, want to become part of office hours, we would love that, you know, to have them involved and have them there. If they're coming in for a two or three month stint, the hard part is, is that they, there's a churn that, that's, that's faster than, than our churn. <laughs> so, so it, and it, and it means that we're externalizing, you know, like we're having people come in, they're learning something, but then they're not continuing to share it with other people. Cause even though, even though we have a, a, uh, um, some churn people coming in and coming out, we have their, their handing stuff off to other people. And the problem, the problem with one of the challenges for school is that, is that it's, it's, it's not persistent, <laughs> you know, that there's not a, a community that it stays inside of people come for a certain amount of time and then leave. And so, um, so we have to be kind of careful of core stuff, but for, <clears throat> for getting, for doing stuff where we're doing a project, we would love to do them in NAB. Uh, let's do something on a weekend. Let's, let's have everybody in and have them jump in and be parts of different teams for specific um, events. We would, I'd love to talk to you about, and I think that that'd be a lot of fun. Plus let's not forget one of our dear friends, Benjamin Antiput came, just showed up here on the panel one day. Right. He was in high school still had yeah. an extraordinary run. We all just love the young man and he's off in college and, now and just doesn't and, have time for us. And the real, the real advantage is that they'll come with, a, they, they come with a lot of, you know, new ideas and a lot of energy and a lot of, um, and they learn really fast. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's really, it's really good. So we would, I mean, I would love to talk to you about it, Andy, to have you have them um, take on certain parts, certain roles of it. And I think that, again, I've, I've often said, I don't think we're the necessarily what we're doing here is the answer, but it points towards some new future that I think it would be really good to expose uh, your students to. All right. Next question. David Paskin from Miami, Florida has a question. Can anyone explain to me why every once in a while I lose the feed from my A10 Mini and I have to unplug and plug back in to get it back? Yeah, well, you read it, Mitch. Answer it. <laughs> Give us a start. Here. Um, I think you're referring to the uh, the dreaded A10 Gray, is it not, David? Because that's what most of us have a problem with is that I, I just lose the feed. Gray. I just lose the feed completely. It's just black. Okay. Um, the one I'm referring to, nobody knows what exactly that is, and they're probably on their way to being Elon Musk if they could figure it out. Uh, Courtney, do you have any thoughts? 
Yeah, if you can figure it out, please let Black Magic know because I've been trying to fix this bug for uh, three or four versions now. And it's since, since it seems to be cross-platform and across different versions of the ATEM, I think it's some uh, FPGA bug in the code that is uh, just setting the output video to gray because the computer doesn't complain. It still seems to be getting video, but it's just gray or black. Uh, and, and nothing you switch on the ATEM will make it come back until you unplug it and restore it and reboot it. Uh, so that and and unplug the uh, USB so that it's not getting power back down the USB bus for some reason. Alex, yeah, I, I, I here's the hard part is is that I think that we're we're trying to figure out a lot of different things between Blackmagic hardware and Zoom. Overall, they work really well together, and there's a lot of things that we do together. But this bug only occurs in Zoom. Like this is, so this, this little thing is not occurring when we turn it on any, I, I haven't seen it anywhere else. And I see it regularly in zoom about once a week. Um, I get this dark gray or black screen and um, I don't see it anywhere else. So this, the, we have a couple isolated incidents with how zoom approaches things and how black magic approaches them. And we're hoping that they can, you know, you know, be friends you know, and, and figure this out. So the, 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 um, you know, the, uh, punching the, the, you know, basically crushing our blacks, um, and as well as our, um, as well as this, this odd request. And we haven't been able to figure it out. And I think it almost sits, needs to take someone who sits in a lab and starts zoom and then quits, it, starts zoom and then quits it and just does it all day until it, <laughs> until, until we figure out what, what is there a number? For some reason, I feel like there's a number and that number is going to be 32, 64, 128. There's somewhere in there, there's a bit that just, you know, goes to the new bit and it doesn't, it doesn't know what to do, um, but but I don't think it's the ATEM because literally, if you're in a gray screen, and in, in, I have done this in Zoom, if I'm in a gray screen, I open up QuickTime and I can still see the video. So it it is there's something there um, that that is odd. Guy, did you have thoughts? Yeah, early on in office hours, I was using the ATEM as my main camera, and I had it happen to me three times. And the third time, I mean, it was just embarrassing. So, and it was only in Zoom. So I just put one of our riser capture cards in, take, took the HDMI out, and the riser one has a, a pass through. So I could still have my HDMI to put it anywhere else. Uh, but that way, when Zoom did that handshake negotiation, it didn't thump it and give me black screen because, I mean, it, if you're on a big webinar and you got a bunch of people watching uh, and you go black, it's terrifying. Have, we had it happen. I mean, it, it was really bad. Uh, we, yeah, it's a long had, story, but you had it happen in, in the, in when it was already connected or were you, um, video was, muted and came unvideo muted? Uh, so this was on a show that, uh, I wasn't actually physically there. I just saw the results of what happened when they cut to him. So it, I think in, in, um, he was not full screen. He was just, probably getting 720. And then when they took him full screen, when they spotlighted him in the webinar, it thumped him and he went black. And then it was just chaos after that. And we had to cut to like a wide shot of the studio from the laptop camera. I mean, it was bad. And there was never you know, mayors that. and senators watching. It was horrible. I've never seen, I've only seen it happen when I'm connecting. Like when I come in and connect, it goes great. Or if I video, if I video mute and come out of that, it can, it can do it. But I've never seen it like once I'm connected, I've never seen it turn off. It's inter interesting. I've well, that's probably because you're you're in uh, where somebody's picking up uh, Zoom ISO or something like that, where they're pulling you 1080 right out the gate. Mm -hmm. So it, what could happen is if you're in in a show and nobody's pulling you 1080, mm -hmm. and then it it switches. I think it's happening in that 360, mm -hmm. 720, 1080, somewhere in there. It's renegotiating and it 
it, it pulls it and it the black magic doesn't know what to do and just resorts to black. And you have to. But again, again, the in. interesting thing is, is that it only happens in Zoom and, and you can see it. We'll do it the next time and we'll make sure we'll make sure that I'm not thinking of something else. But the next time, if it goes gray, my request is anybody that has this, if it goes gray, open up QuickTime and see if you, or open up some other videos device and see if you still see the ATEM because that'll help us identify whether it's Zoom or or the or the ATEM <laughs> you know, because it's, because they're, you know, on how they're negotiating because it, if it's still showing up in QuickTime, or somewhere else and it's not showing up in Zoom, then I will lean towards more that it's an issue in Zoom. Fair enough. Mitchell, you had a last thought? Yeah, I would confirm uh, Alex's use case. It never does it out of the blue, like right now, going to gray. It would always do it when I'm changing the state somehow. But, yeah, like but going from one room to another, uh, stopping or yep. starting the video, some other type of uh, uh, condition. Yep, And but to Guy's point, we always have, we're always pulling 1080, so that's a little different. We're in a different state. Hmm. Interesting. Well, more research to be done. Uh, the office hours team will continue to keep digging through this. And when we know something, we'll start talking about it. Next question. Aaron Jen Corelli from Flagstaff, uh, Arizona asks, is there a way to clean up poor digitized audio from Zoom in a live show? Have guests calling in with various devices, audio chain is Zoom ISO to loopback to pluggable HDMI out to ATEM. Is there software to clean up audio? Mitchell. I had a uh, similar situation. There's not a lot of real-time software that's not going to introduce some type of latency. And uh, Mickey had made the recommendation of a Cedar DNS2, which is a hardware device that you can put in line uh, to do it in real time without any latency, or at least none that I can notice. Okay, not the most inexpensive thing, but if that's what you need to do to get your show out, Alex had a thought too. Yeah, I've had a couple Cedars and um, both the DNS-8 and the DNS-2s. Um, and the Cedar would work great as far as noise goes. The problem with the Cedar is, is that it, if it's, if you already have, you know, quantized the, if, if it's already kind of chunky coming in, the Cedar has less to work with. And I, I, I don't know how well that would work. The other thing is if you turn the Cedar up too much, you'll hear it go digital pretty quick. So, you, you know, you have to be very gentle with the Cedar to get um, what you're what you're trying to do there. Um, so the Cedar, it's actually less expensive to buy a Mix Pre 3 with noise assist than it would be to buy a Cedar. But of course, you don't have the outputs, you don't have the XLR outputs. So, so the, um, so anyway, but the, uh, the Cedar works great. And that's what I used with before the Mix Pre um, to, to, to remove audio. Mike, I think the problem is, is that what you really need is, is to be able to um, manage EQ. I think that's what you really hear a lot is EQ issues, people being really thin, people being really bassy, people being really... And so um, I think that getting them into a breakout room before you get there, making decisions about what they're doing, figuring out what your approach is going to be for that person, I think may also be useful. And uh, Courtney is back in on this. Courtney? Yeah, all the all the solutions mentioned so far are about uh, noise removal, you know, background noise removal. But if your if your guest has gain staging problems and are distorted going in to their uh, laptop or, or PC, whatever they're using, connect to Zoom, it's going to be very difficult to real time remove any of that distortion or splatter or whatever they've got. Uh, that's a gain staging issue on the back end. You know, most of the uh, background noise removal algorithms will uh, will not be able to correct that. And Alex, you had a final word. And if it's important, send them a mic. You know, like like we, we uh, for Michael Krasny's show, we just send mics out. We just send them out. In fact, we are now getting to the point where we won't even let them use their own mic because we know what their we know what our mics do and how to make them work and everything. We're using these MV7s, and we had somebody with a with a a Yeti, 
And when they tested, they tested fine. But when they did the show, they had obviously changed the setting, but we were in the show once we got going. And, and it was, you know, and the problem is, is that we don't know the settings very well. And so we didn't know where to tell them to go anyway. So it's, it's important. Like what we've done is we've kind of, after we did all that mic testing, we just started, um, we standardized on the MB7s and we're just, we just send out MB7s to everybody that's going to be in the show. Sometimes your budget isn't going to be able to manage that, but think about mics that you possibly can send out that standard, help standardize that. We used to send out a lot of the, the little Pulsons and the, you know, and they, they did a pretty good job of at least cleaning things up a bit um, to make that work. But, um, but if it matters, think about actually standardizing on how they're coming in and then make sure that you meet with them before the show and then right before the show. So a couple of days before the show, make sure it's working, they understand it. And then right before the show, make sure that you're checking them again. Um, again, that's not something you can do for every show, but it makes a big, big difference. And uh, looks like we're set for the next question. We are burning through these very quickly. And don't forget that today we're have, going to have two hours of continuous audience Q&A. So make sure that if you have a topic that you want to explore, it's an excellent day to do this. Courtney, I'm sorry. Uh, Mitch, let's go on to the next question. Simon Ray from Shrewsbury, UK. What are the common solutions for dealing with strobing and moray? Is it possible to reduce their effects in post-production? Okay, nobody sing the Italian song. Jason's going to help us out here. I had a really great moray example from Wikipedia and my iPhone went to sleep. But uh, okay, um, I almost always end up fixing this in camera. And of course, that's, that's probably the best way to do it. Uh, but um, yeah, strobing can be fixed um, by tracking and a, um, oh, what's it called? A, a blur, a Gaussian blur. Um, can also help help moray in camera. The easiest way I think is to to reduce or um, increase frame rate for strobing and for moray. I would say for um, uh, stop down or stop up should yeah. be able to fix it. Courtney, uh, not easily to fix in post because it depends on where the moray is happening. Usually, it's between the uh, the monitors. Uh, pixels, the actual pixels in a monitor that you're shooting and the camera's uh, sensor. Uh, that's where the moray usually happens, but it can also happen with your video signal and a monitor if you have a dot pattern or something, if you're outputting to a different monitor. But um, the way to reduce it is to, uh, the easiest way is if you're getting a lot of fringing or color fringing or moving moray is change your field size a little bit on the camera and that will uh, change the moray and you can find field sizes where it doesn't beat and and move around very much. Uh, so just zoom in a little bit, zoom out a little bit. And of course, defocusing the background will eliminate it almost completely. But uh, if you need to have a sharp background, uh, change the field size. I will say that's one of the things that's gotten more difficult as we move to this world where who knows what the raster is that your content is going to be shown on eventually. In the old days, everything was standard definition broadcast. And you knew that when you saw somebody's tie and it was crawling along the edges, you could zoom out or zoom in a little to fix it. Uh, today, with all the rasters these are getting mapped to, it is a little more complicated. The one thing that I would recommend is make sure that you start watching video really closely and look so that you can recognize the problem. It Specifically, Moray has a real specific look to it. Strobing, uh, the flashing on and off or bright and dark of a picture uh, is easier, in my opinion, to, to pick out of something than a traditional Moray. But they're both things that you need to be aware of so that 
that you can try to take action to get rid of it in your actual content. Alex has another thought, and then Guy. Alex? Yeah, so so the um, couple things with the Marae is, is, as Courtney said, this is the, your focal length is really important. A lot of times you'll see a show and you'll, they'll have big LED walls behind them, and you'll, you'll be like, wow, that didn't, they didn't have much Marae. But if you see the behind the scenes, what you saw is that they focused, th they zoomed through the Marae, you know, and then they, and, you know, and didn't get, they just keep cutting around it and they might lose 60, 70, 80% of their shots because they, they're trying to avoid the moray in, in the, uh, in the cameras. And so uh, that's in big, big LED walls, not probably applicable to what you're doing here, but it, it is important that focal length becomes very important. Strobing is, is oftentimes a function of shutter when the shutter is going faster than the, than those, than the refresh of the monitor. Um, you are going to have issues, you know, and so you're going to see that because they're not they're not scanning in in the same speed, and so if you can lower that, sometimes you um, we 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 slow down the shutter. We leave a frame rate where it is, but we slow the shutter down to get underneath the refresh rate of the screens, um, and then that that oftentimes will uh, will help. And uh, that guy wanted to get back in on this guy. Yeah, that's everything that uh, Alex said and uh, Courtney said is uh, what I was going to say. But in addition to that, there's a camera that I've been eyeing and it hasn't been released yet. And one of the, the notes in it is that they have a, a new optical low pass filter, which reduces the effect of Moray for clearer picture and quality when shooting against an LED wall. It says, which is especially important for rental and staging or worship environments. So it, it's interesting because this camera that I have sitting next to me is the the model that is shipping. It's the HE145. And I was reading through the manual yesterday and it said, if you wanted that, you actually physically have to send this camera in to have them put in this optical low pass filter. So it's like a physical thing. So uh, I don't know how much that helps you, but to just know that there are cameras that you could rent out there. So if you are going to do a, a big LED wall for a rental, uh, you know, specific gig, you might want to consider one of these cameras that have these optical low pass filters in them. And Alex wants to come back on this, Alex. And to uh, to guy um, to, to guy's point, uh, black magics don't have that. <laughs> like, but you know, and, and it makes them more susceptible to moray in a, in an event. Um, but a lot of cameras, Sony's and a couple other cameras, have the low pass filters built in built into the broadcast cameras. And we're ready for our next question from Rizal F. Harati in Tempe, Arizona. Is it permitted for teachers to use copyrighted songs and videos that we email to our students? I teach college students in person. My students and I will not distribute the videos outside of class. Mitch and Alex are in on this. Mitch, you start us. Uh, technically, it is illegal. Uh, the music uh, companies, uh, record companies, are particularly interested in anything that may keep somebody from making a, a record or a song purchase. Now, I don't recommend that you do it, but I think the music police are going to be way more busy uh, tracking down other people than you. So use your uh, use your own discretion. Alex? Yeah. Um, generally, uh, most educators are protected under fair use. I mean, they just, they, they're not really, it, it, well, I think Mitchell's technically correct. Most, most people kind of consider almost anything you use in an education platform to be fair use unless you're just wildly distributing it. So when a teacher sends something to a student, man, I have, it might be possible, but like if you send a whole collection of songs, that's one thing, but it might be possible, but I, I think that I've never heard of anybody ever <laughs> having a problem with that. Um, again, teacher to student is usually, especially in a in a in accredited um, school, pretty um, pretty rare for anybody to to go after that. Courtney, yeah, educational use is fair use, so you're probably not going to get a lawyer coming after you. But the bots are, you know, 
they uh, shoot first and ask questions later. So you could, if you, if anybody from that class posts anything on YouTube or anywhere, that then it might get a strike that way. And if you want the actual rules, Stanford.edu has an excellent website on fair use that outlines in layman's language the actual rules of how this works. Let's go on to the next question. From David Paskin in Miami, Florida, and here on our panel, a fascinating behind-the-scenes was posted in Discord of a football game. It seemed like lots of people talking over one another on comms. Were we hearing multiple channels, or is that really how comms on big events work? And Alex. So usually what happens in a lot of these large events is there's PLs. These are these are party lines. Um, and the word PL goes all the way back to the, when we start a telephone. <laughs> you, you are on party line two and you are three rings. And so the party line is, um, and a lot of times for a large event, there may be, um, you know, for right now, like in Unity, you get six party lines. But on a big event, you might have 20 PLs or 30 PLs or, or more that are all managing different items of the, of the process. On many, what happens is, is that on many panels that people have, and typically in a truck, it's an RTS system, but it, can, it could be ClearCom or Riedel. Um, and what what you have is um, you have a you have twenty four keys, and those keys are a mixture of party lines and directs. So if I need to talk to somebody, I can talk to them directly, or I can have a party line that I'm listening to. What you're probably listening to there is someone opening up a couple of those party lines, all so that you can hear a bunch of them. Sometimes people can just listen. I mean, it's not uncommon to sit there and listen to three or four party lines and they go over each, they go over each other and you get used to which ones are, you know, who is where uh, in those party lines. I know that um, uh, uh, Brian Maddox will actually put them, he'll take those party lines and he'll put them in stereo space. So he knows who's, you know, who is where, like on his left side are certain teams and on the right side is other teams. And so you can play around with, you know, that type of thing, but it's not uncommon for you to listen to a bunch of them that might be going over top of each other. It is a, a good reason why people tend to want you to be pretty succinct if you're on a party line because, you know, and be clear of what you want to say, say it and get off so that if people are listening to an overlap, they're not, you're not listening to three people going, um, well, I, you know, every, anyone who starts, that's, that's, <laughs> that's how we all begin, but you know what, <laughs> try not, try not to be, that's your beginning, but, but listen, the best thing to do if you're on, if you're in any of those is listen to it. And you start to listen for the cadence, like how are people talking and what they're doing. And because and, there's different cultural things, I mean, even East Coast, West Coast or different productions will all have their own way of doing it. And you want to listen to how they're doing and, and then just conform to what the what the system is looking for, not what you've done in the past. You want to listen and just kind of get into the groove of it. But um, but it's it's pretty common to hear a bunch of a bunch of party lines um, running all at the same time. But if you're really there, there'll be certain ones like the cameras might only be listening to theirs, you know, or one or two party lines, and then that you know. So everybody has a different experience of what those party lines are based on what if they're on a belt pack, they may only have two to four channels. If they're on a if they're on a uh, console, they might have twenty four channels that they could theoretically have open. Next. Oh, I think, yeah. Next question. Peter Rosado in Las Vegas, Nevada asked panelists uh, or panels thoughts on a Behringer Bigfoot on sale for $31.05 in Amazon. And three people want to get on this. Let's start with Tony Mobley. Tony? So I started in the office house community using the pile mic. And at the time it was 15 bucks or less. Now it is, uh, I think around 20 bucks. Um, it is, it was for me, it was, it was good. The reason I mentioned it is because the Behringer Bigfoot I have purchased. 
I purchased it at $29 from Sweetwater. Um, the community has had several opportunities for members to play with the, the Behringer Bigfoot. And the recommendation has been that if you can get it for $50 or less, the normal price is $99. If you can get it for $50 or less, then it is a good buy. So Amazon has replicated the Sweetwater deal by just upping it by $2. So it's a good deal if you want a quality mic at less than $50. It's a good deal. Excellent. David Paskin. It's... uh seems like an amazing deal actually it's it's eighty one dollars off um you're saving seventy almost seventy five percent i mine is showing twenty seven ninety six um it, the the reviews look all very positive um good good um, sound quality good build you do have um volume on the front you've also got um, a dedicated gain on the back with all the different patterns look it's it's a sub $100 USB mic. It's not going to, you know, live up to Alex standards, but, uh, boy, for 25 bucks, something. Absolutely. Courtney. Yeah. I bought one at Sweetwater, like uh, Tony said, when they were on sale for 29 bucks, uh, gave it away some to someone, but, uh, so it makes a, a lovely gift. I listened to it and tested it and it sounded okay. The capsules are all right. And if you keep it in cardioid mode, it makes a good, uh, podcasting mic. Um, I, the trick, the problem is if you give it to a novice that they might have it in the wrong pattern mode and have it in Omni or have it in stereo when they don't or think, oh, well, I've got it. I'm feeding stereo. I'll let me put it in stereo. No, that's not a good idea. Uh, but uh, it does have monitoring built in. Uh, my main criticisms of it, I tore it apart uh, to compare it to the Blue Yeti, which it is the clone of. And it's similar. They've combined the analog and digital boards uh, onto the same board. It's using the same uh, DAC as the Yeti is. So the D-Day converter and the USB interface is the same. And I think they're using the same capsules as well. So it's a pretty close copy. A main criticism, it's very heavy because that base weighs about a pound and a half to keep it anchored. And if you're going to mount it to something... Um, you got to take that off that it doesn't have any shock mounting. So it's going to transfer any, you know, thumps or things on your desk directly into the, to the microphone itself. But if you can isolate it, uh, uh, vibration wise from your desk, it's a, it's a pretty good buy for that. Alex. Uh, I'll have one tomorrow. We'll take a look. <laughs> Not only was it available on Amazon for $30, but I went up to do it when the question came up. I was like, Oh, this would be a good one for to, to, to test. And, um, uh, and it said, you can have it between five and 10 tonight. <laughs> so anyway, if it, if it shows up, we'll, we'll, we'll jump into after hours and play with it a little bit. And, but um, we'll, we'll tell you what we think. I, I, I figured it was good for us to look at it really quickly and test it if we can, even in this evening, if it actually shows up um, so that we can all decide like, hey, is this something we should have as an extra mic or something you can send out? I mean, I'm tempted to get a bunch of these if they work, um, mostly because um, the... Uh, um, it, it's really good if you just want to send someone something like, I, I'm not, I'm not going to send you a $250 MV7, but I want to make sure that you sound a little bit better having something that is kind of a, that kind of thing where you don't even send it back. <laughs> just, just here's, here's a mic, here's a gift you know, for being on the show. Uh, so that it better than, better than probably anything else that they have. That's, that's when you send it out. And by the way, Courtney, what we found, we found with the blue Yeti mics that if you pour, um, super glue into that dial, 
like into the edges of the dial, it's harder to, for them to go to the wrong setting. <laughs> <laughs> you just decide where that setting needs to well, be. You that mic. take them apart and take the knob off. And like, no, oh. we just poured. We just we just put we did a little super glue right in the right in the edges there, and it just it just locks right in. And and then after that, or Loctite. Loctite's even more effective. So, um, but those things, and it doesn't seem to affect the audio quality at all. But it does make sure that that knob doesn't go anywhere. Push the button <laughs> as many times as you want. It's yeah, just exactly. going to stay exactly where it needs to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that reminds me, if it's nothing, an angle grinder won't fix. So Tony yeah. Mobley had a last thought. Yeah, my, my use case for getting it was that I got it for House of Worship members who had nothing other than just a laptop and, or a phone. So this this was the use case that, that I purchased it. Okay. And one final little note, if you're having trouble with that mechanical noise that Alex talked about, a good piece, a good old mouse pad, the kind that's made out of neopene uh, skin diver material, Works wonders for those kind of small vibrations. Let's move to the next question. David Paskin, Miami, Florida, asking, what's your take on OpenAI's chat GPT and how it might play a role in script writing, event planning, and app development? I'm going to start with Guy Cochran. Yeah, um, when it first hit the scene, uh, Jonas uh, was sending us some stuff in, uh, in Discord and telling us to take a look at it, and I was kind of amused. But then it wasn't until this morning when I saw a friend uh, post this up. He says, uh, he was talking with chat, uh, chat GPT and he says, uh, create a one page HTML page that uses JavaScript to display the current time of day in a large font centered on the page. And it made it. And then he said, I realized I need to speci specify a dynamic clock. So I added, make the clock count the current time dynamically in real time and got a working page. So it wrote this script and I'll, I'll put a link there and uh, I just added it to the event chat. So you can see that that was completely generated code. He did not have to write any of that. It wrote it for him. So my mind is just blown because I'm like, you know, there, there's, there was examples of, of, um, you know, find my errors in my code. And I saw some of that and I saw value in that, of course, because, you know, you get two engineers working side by side and, you know, maybe you don't need that second engineer to watch your code all the time. If you could just use an AI chat GPT to clean up your code for you. Uh, but yeah, seeing my, my buddy who's written some extensive stuff do this, it just, it blows my mind. I mean, that uh, in layman's term, so you can talk like that and have a a page generated for you. So there's there's big things to come. I mean, it's, it's exciting. John Preto. So so this is a second hour topic here. This is just, you know, and and open API is seven years old. DeepMind is is 12 years old. It's been around for a long time. GP2 is, I think, four years old. They're working on GP4 right now, which is going to be spectacular. But there's the other side of the coin. There's misuse of the product as well. So a lot of the ads that you see on Facebook and a lot of disinformation has been used for for years uh, for these AI bots now. So it's going to be an interesting uh, conversation. Alex, I think we should put that. If Josh is listening, I think we should put that. I think Friday was another like all we, we're a little slow on on subjects this week because of the Kilo show and everybody's really busy on the Kilo show. And so it didn't get quite lined up, but I think Friday, let's, let's put the chat GPT back in. So we'll, we'll, we'll make sure everybody knows. Cause I think we should be talking about it this week. Um, I went from not knowing what chat GPT was a couple weeks ago to, I have a window open all the time <laughs> like over here. That's chat GPT. And I just throw things in. I'm like, I wonder what it'll do with that. Uh, when it really, you know, and, and I have, um, I said, you know, like I, for, we didn't use them, but for one of the um, audio, uh, when we did the audio show, we were talking about polarity and, and, and I said, give me 10 questions 
of um, a polarity and phase as it relates to audio. And it gave me 10 solid questions that would have driven, like if I had put them in, they would have totally driven the whole conversation. I was like, whoa, you know, like, and, and so you can ask it to do all kinds of things. Over the weekend, I asked it to, um, I said, uh, what is a good rainy day soup recipe? And, and it, it proceeded to tell me, um, here is a simple and delicious rainy day soup that, that, um, that you can make with the ingredients that you may already have in your pantry. And it went on to list a, basically a vegetable and, and, and uh, a chicken soup. And um, I, uh, I think I'm going to have to, I apologize. I'm, I'm going to get this fixed this week. Uh, I'm going to share my screen real quickly here. Um, let's see here. Uh, so just in case you're wondering what that soup looked like, um, that's the soup. Um, and, uh, and it was quite tasty <laughs> like, and, and literally that's the first soup ever. I think, I don't know if it's the first soup ever created from, from AI, but, but, uh, if it, the funny thing is I realized is once you get the robots into the kitchen, you could literally just say, I need you to make me a nice rainy day soup. And it would just like, you know, and, um, too and many then, carrots. No, there was not enough. Car- you never have you too cannot, many carrots. You can never have too many carrots. Um, anyway, so the, um, uh, but, you know, it was a little off on how long it thought it would take to, now I doubled the, there's a couple of things that I did. I doubled the size of it. So then the, some of the times weren't right and everything else. But overall, it was, um, it was really good. I, we were on another list that I'm on. Uh, we were talking to some folks that do pretty high end production and they, they were using Maya and someone actually uh, asked Maya to build an, asked chat GPT to create an exporter, a, a, a geometry exporter for Maya. <laughs> And it did it. <laughs> like, like, like it was just Uh-oh. like, it just, they said there was a couple little corrections they had to make. So it's, they said it's, you're going to get to a point where you're going to have, you may have the AI write a lot of the code, but you still need an advanced coder to, to go through it and see what, you know, there's, it, it may not have all the contexts correct that, that advanced coder has. But the challenge, this is the thing that, 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 um, the thing that's a challenge about this is that it's not, cutting out the top people. It's cutting out everyone from about 60% to zero. You know, like the, the top 40%, top 25%, they still can do more than, than the AI. The problem is, is that if you cut out all of the demand for that, uh, for the 60% and below, what's the feeder system into the top end? <laughs> like, you know, like who, how do you, if you're not making a living for 10 years doing okay code, how do you become a great coder? If the if if there if people are just having the 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 chat you know the the AI do it all and so that's the that's really a challenge there is that mediocre work is all going to get replaced but that mediocre work now some of it's just mediocre work but some of it is mediocre work based on experience and people needing to have more time to you know to to go through that process and that may not be available much longer so and I think that we that's that from a kind of what do we do with this. You know, we're not just cutting out, you know, we, we are replacing a lot of people, but I don't think that's the biggest issue. The biggest issue is replacing the feeder system, you know, and, you know, no one's going to have Little League and, you know, to go through, you know, to do that for, you know, and get paid to do those things. So that, that's a real challenge. David, you had some thoughts on this. MKBHD did a really interesting video about this, and, and he talked for the first two minutes or so of his video, and then he said, now you wouldn't want AI to, to write a whole script for a video, Except that's exactly what I just did. The entire script that he read for the first two minutes was created by ChatGPT. It was fascinating. For my use case, um, I, you know, as a as a rabbi, I give sermons all the time, and so I asked um, ChatGPT to write me a, a, a sermon, 
And it did a pretty darn good job. And here's the kicker is that I used Hebrew words written in English, but I used Hebrew words in my question to chat GBT and it knew exactly what to do with them. Hmm. That's really fascinating. Courtney. Wow. Does it have a little digital yarmulke that the, uh, that Dali puts on the character that it generates. It's I'm celebrating gonna, Hanukkah. Yeah. It's celebrating Hanukkah. All right. The uh, yeah, I think uh, children's book authors should be very afraid. Uh, I asked it. I worked. I played with it a little bit and asked it to just to generate a story. I just gave it the minimum of prompts. You know, like tell me a story about Rags the dog. You know, something that simple. You know, short story. And it wrote this little short story about Rags, and he met up with Max in the park, and they had a great time. And it, and it wrote this beautifully beautiful little short story and then there was uh it it knew all the story constructions you know there was an evil dog that came in and attacked rags and injured him and then there was a nice lady who wreck you know who rescued him and so it created this whole story just out of the ether uh and and i can imagine that uh, parents could use it to uh, generate you know uh, little stories for their kids using their kids names or their pets names and so on and, and it will generate a little uh, you know, suitable G-rated story about the kids and their pets. Uh, and then you could have Dali generate the uh, the images to go with it, and they could create a little children's book very easily. Uh, so I, it's great at that. I tried doing anything with current events. It's not very good. It does not uh, have any recent information in it. So if you ask, like, whatever happened to this actor, you know, it, it doesn't know that kind of stuff. It doesn't, I don't think it uses Wikipedia or any of the news type uh, events to to ingest its information from. Uh, I'm not sure what they're training it with, but uh, it can't deal with current events. But for you know, writing stories about general topics, it's uh, quite amazing. And writing code is really amazing. Alex, by the way, someone in another list that I was on, we were talking about this fact that I cooked um, an AI driven recipe, and they uh, they took the recipe just the whole recipe didn't didn't do anything with it just cut and paste it into mid journey and got a bowl of soup that looked almost exactly like my bowl of soup <laughs> like, like there was like some weird circular thing there but it was literally they took that out and they just put it in and it was just it just came out and the two of them you put them next to each other you'd think they were two different bowls on the on the same table it was crazy yeah hmm, interesting let's head off to our next question from kyle hammond in chicago illinois asking Having an issue with QLab sending OSC signals of TrueFalse to ATEM Mini Pro via ATEM OSC. Found some chatter online, but can anyone point me to a too long, didn't read solution? I'm not sure anybody can write at this point, Kyle. Unfortunately, oh, there we go. Alex is going to pop in and do it, Alex. I would see if you can if if you can make it work with Touch OSC, and just just to see if if you have another another way to to make that work. There you go. So hopefully that'll send you, Kyle, down a more productive route. Let's get to the next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, I read that the NFL production infrastructure was recently upgraded from 1080i to 1080p60, even though the ATSC 3.0 standard supports 4K. Do you think we'll see broadcasters update their pipelines to be 4K end-to-end? -end? Starting with Mitchell. Mitchell. I'm not sure that you would call the infrastructure uh, as an upgrade because they might broadcast uh, to 1080p. P60. Uh, most broadcasters are 1080i. Um, I've known for a fact that NFL's been producing uh, videos at the highest resolution they have, 4K, typically some even 8K. And uh, Alex? Yeah, it, 
the whole the thing you have to think about when you think about infrastructure is while you know while you may have a format ATSC ATSC may may support it you're talking about upgrading every piece of a chain from the truck it's one thing to update the truck it's another thing to update every single piece of the chain to support 4K and it'll be 4K 60 that they want to use which is 12G instead of um, 3G which is what the 1080p 60 is because 60 frames a second is where the sports wants to go because the higher frame rate is more visceral and feels more real. And so 60 frames a second is more important than this. Is, so when people have looked at it, they found that frame rate was more important than resolution and HDR was actually more important than resolution. And even audio, immersive sound was more important and resolution. <laughs> so, so in, in in a lot of the studies, it turns out that resolution is the last thing that you that you update um, as you go through it. And resolution turns out to be one of the hardest things to manage throughout the entire pipeline. So, um, they are capturing. I'm pretty certain they're capturing 4K. Um, you are seeing. You're going to see it where we don't where we don't have as many um, pieces in the pipeline. So, I expect to see MLS that Apple is doing probably debut in 4K. Um, I, I I thought for some reason I thought that that 4K was available in uh, for Amazon, but I'm not certain. I think it, I think you can actually see 4K in the the Thursday night football, but I don't know that for a fact. Um, and so um, so those are the. Uh, but you're going to see where we stream it can go 4K much faster than broadcasting to people's houses in 4K. So the the end to end, if you're talking about glass to glass. Uh, that's going to take a long time to get to 4K, maybe never. <laughs> like, you know, like it, that'll actually be regular to do that because there's so much upgrade and TV is on a shrinking island. So spending more more money on the entire infrastructure for something that isn't really growing. I mean, the, 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 the stats behind the scenes are devastating. I mean, TV is just getting annihilated, you know, broadcast TV. And so, um, so where you see streaming is much more likely to be a place that you see higher resolutions, 4K and then 8K and then 60 frames a second, then 120. Um, I, I do, I, I'll make a bold prediction today. Someone have to write it down. <laughs> that by the fourth season of MLS, they'll be doing uh, 8K 120. You know, at least 4K 120, but probably 8K 120 because they're going to keep pressing that down on that, you know, by the, by the fourth season. John so Credo. I just... Oh. I just checked. Sorry, um, Amazon is not doing 4K for the NFL. Um, in fact, the frame rates aren't even as high as Lord of the Rings. So, no. Interesting. Uh, John, you had a thought. John Prado. So, <clears throat> Doug Ferguson got us a tour of a of a the one of the trucks that they use for Indianapolis Colts NFL, and it's a 2110 truck, and it goes all the way up. To, they can support 8K in the truck. It's spectacular. This truck is amazing. So, all their networking infrastructure. I think is is way more expensive than the video gear in that truck. It, it's pretty darn amazing. So they're, they'll be able to turn those levers up. So they're pushing in that direction. Courtney Gooden. Um, maybe for uh, streaming, but for next-gen TV, which is what they've, uh, they've adopted uh, to call ATSC3 next-gen. So my, my Samsung TV that I just bought you know, a couple of months ago has a next-gen receiver in it. And here in Los Angeles, which is a pretty big service area, there's only like four stations that are actually broadcasting uh, in ATSC3 or next-gen. Uh, and the images don't look any better. They're 1080 p but not 1080i but they're not 4k and i don't think very many stations are going to use the 4k to broadcast over the air uh atsc3 can also send a lot of digital data and metadata 
as well so that they can use side channels uh, at additional, they can use, you know, two or three sub channels at lower resolution or at 1080i. And I think most TV stations would rather uh, utilize that to carry more advertising to more different diverse groups. You know, they can have uh, sub channels that service, uh, you know, particular uh, ethnic groups or language groups uh, in their primary service area. They can have a Latino channel or a Korean channel or a uh, Taiwanese channel, whatever is in their primary service area, they'd be better served dividing up that bandwidth and uh, providing it to more people that way than using it for 4K. Mitch, did you have a last thought? Yeah, I just uh, asked a buddy of mine what uh, camera they tend to use over at NFL Films these days. Uh, the same one they've been using for the last five years, the Alexa Mira, uh, shooting at 4K, and they've got rooms full of them. Alex? And to be clear, that's for post-production. So the Amira is being used. Um, I, I was actually at an NFL game where the Amira was sitting right next to me. Um, and uh, the Amiras are being used, but they're not using those for the games. The game coverage is, I think, I, I don't know actually what they're what they're using. Right, Sony's, um, but the uh, but the those mirrors are being used just for the. There's like one or two per game that are floating. Well, maybe more, but there's a handful of them that are floating around, and that's capturing just for NFL films. Hmm. So there you go. All right, next question. Next question in from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. It's obvious that with all the advances in AI that Apple Siri, Amazon Alexa, Google Home, Facebook Portal are all far behind where they should be content-wise and conversationally. Why are they all so bogged down? Alex. Uh, so I've done some stuff in this area. <laughs> and and um, a couple things. One is uh, understanding what people are saying. You, it, it, it may seem like, oh, I'm just talking to my Alexa or to my Facebook, you know, or, or these things. You, it's hard. It's hard to get your head around how much work it takes to handle just listening to people, their voice, and understanding what they're saying inside of a busy, uh, you know, hard surfaces, a busy uh, room, other things going on, it playing its own music. All of these other things is an enormous lift. Um, I worked on a team that kind of worked on some of those things, and it was literally three or four days a week for months and months and months on a new house every day, every week of, 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 you know, like getting different ambient, whatever, different parts of the country, different other things, like different accents, different uh, situations, different, you know, like all those things to make that, that improvement. So it's, it is a huge lift just to be able to hear what you're saying and understand it. The second side of that is that they have to be far more careful about what it, how it responds. You know, G, GPT will tell you a lot of things that would scare people, like not, it, it actually has a lot of filters to not say the wrong things, but, and to keep you from putting that stuff in. And it, they're, they're careful about that. But, but the, it, it's giving so much information in such detail, it might actually make people feel like they don't want the, <laughs> they don't want the thing in there. So I think that they are definitely being more careful about how they hand that out. But I think that with, when you look at chat GPT, and we'll talk about it more on Friday, you're looking at a glimpse of the future of how all these things are going to run, but they've been very careful about how, wh where they get the content, you know, you know, um, and, and how they're managing that content and whether there's going to be any kind of, you know, it's, it's one thing for someone to just scan the internet and pull all this knowledge in. It's another thing for Apple to do that because it, it opens them up to all kinds of lawsuits. And so, um, so that those are some of the things that I think that are the issue. Courtney. Uh, yeah, I think they're getting smarter in their responses. Uh, and like Alex says, you know, the the difficulty is like when I talk to my Google Home or or the uh, Alexa, and I have both of them in the room a lot of times, um, 
<laughs> and I'll tell you more about that in a second. Uh, if the TV is on, you know, it has to pick your voice out of the TV and separate your words from what's hearing from the actors that are on TV that are, it's hearing as well at the same time. And it can actually do that because it trains to your voice if you turn that on. And most of them uh, can train to your voice to recognize your voice amongst all the clatter and the other voices in the room. The other thing is I've, I've had problems with it uh, understanding me or hearing me if water is running. So broadband noise, they're not very good at filtering that out and pulling the words out of a broadband noise like water running or, you know, a, a loud hiss or something would, would be difficult, makes it difficult for it. But it's its responses are they're programming in more humanity into them. I've noticed that it, it responds more like a real person. In fact, I even have my uh, Google Home. I have it listen after it it answers if you want to do another question so that you don't have to wake it up again with the wake word. So it listens for 15 seconds after it answers. And if it answers and it doesn't give me a good answer, I'll ask Alexa the same question. And uh, it gets jealous now. And if I ask, if I ask the Google home a question and then I go, Alexa, turn on the, you know, turn on the, if Google says I can't turn on that TV right now, you know, then I'll ask Alexa to do it. And Google, clears its throat. He goes, <clears throat> I think you have me confused with somebody else <laughs> thinking I'm talking to it. Can't wait when for the Alexa wars. <laughs> so you get them fighting back and forth with each other. It's really bad. Uh, crazy. All right. Let's move on to the next question. From Mike Muddy Schlegel in Raleigh, North Carolina. We have a few pan tilt zoom cameras mounted along the back wall in our church sanctuary where our main doors are located. When someone opens or closes a door, the camera image shakes. How can I isolate or dampen the vibration for the wall-mounted PTZ cameras? Guy Cochran's going to start us out here. Yeah, um, move it. <laughs> Unless you can get a structural engineer to go in there and you know figure out what's swaying and reinforce it, you're probably best moving it or swapping to see if that's uh, can be a wide shot instead of the close-up because at the tele telephoto end is where you're going to see the uh, most pronounced uh, shaking and shimmying. Um, there is a company called PTZ Cam that has an anti-vibration uh, device. It's 195 bucks, and uh, it looks like this. Um, I'll put that link for this in the chat. But basically, there's some rubber there. But I, it just depends. I've seen you know like uh, big, big, huge. Uh, what do they call it? Uh, second floors where even the floor, the whole floor will move. So um, you might be out of, out of luck without moving it. And if you have a higher end camera, there might be in under the lens setting an OIS, optical image stabilization. You can flip that on and uh, that'll give you a little bit more of a uh, way of curing some of that shake. Ronnie Settle. Yeah, I've, uh, I've purchased these vibration reduction mounts before uh, in an uh, in a vain attempt of uh, reducing vibration from the walls, which is extremely hard to do when you've got subwoofers in the same room. My, uh, my solution to that ended up being, uh, my question also would be, what are your floors made out of? So our floors are concrete, so we, uh, we gave up on the walls and we have tripods or uh, metal poles right into the concrete and, uh, and that fixes the problem. But uh, right above the door, it's, you're gonna have to just take the doors off because <laughs> every time they hit, it's just going to shake. The mounts, the, if you're in the back of the room, those, those mounts may do something if you're up close, but if you're in the back of the room, every tiny little movement is going to be exaggerated by that zoom. So I would, if you've got concrete floors, 
put them on the floor. Courtney, do you have anything to add here? Yeah, everything everyone says is pretty much true. I'd, I'd say optic, uh, optical image stabilization or electronic image stabilization might be able to remove it, um, vibration a little bit, especially if you're on a long lens and it's doing this, shaking up and down like this for a while after the door closes. Uh, it might be able to take some of that shake out, um, but you know, it, you're going to lose uh, resolution and you're going to create delay. Uh, somewhat uh, in your live image if you're feeding it out to uh, for uh, you know iMag. Alex, you had something to add? Only adding this note because we're talking about shaking cameras. I, I don't think I don't expect you to do this in the church. <laughs> so, but um, <clears throat> this was a, this is a big problem with um, touring things, especially like a campaign or <clears throat> sorry. Um, and um, the uh, one solution that was used for a, a touring um, a touring process was to take a a box um, that was heavily reinforced um, that was three by three and dropping, putting three inches of sand on on the bottom of it and um, and then taking a concrete block and lowering it down into the into the box that it sat on that three inches of sand and the, and the concrete block was six inches smaller in, you know, across. So it's three inches on each side of it. And then they poured sand back into that. And then they, um, and then they put neoprene, this kind of, it's like a really thick, it's not neoprene, but it's a real thick absorber. And then they put the tripod down on top of that. And then the operator stood not on top of that. And there was pretty much almost nothing that you could do that would show up in the camera when, you, when, when, uh, when that was done. And that was, um, that was from a temper tantrum. I, th I, I heard, I wasn't working on that show, but I, the temper tantrum was, I, I need you to like nuke this problem. <laughs> was I think, was the, you know, like I knew we're having these shaking cameras and we need to not have this and I need you to do whatever it takes to get it done. I thought I just found that to be a fascinating story of like, okay, well, this is how we do that. And um, that's, that's how they did it. And they did it every single day or maybe every two days. Yeah. Oh, and this is why your touring crews make some money. Uh, Guy Cochran. Yeah. Because I'm fascinated with pushing buttons. I had to push the button to see what would happen if I turned optical image stabilization on. So this is with it off and I'm going to start shaking the camera. So that's the shake and I'm going to flip it on and I'm going to hit set. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the same shot. And so the, here's it, here's it off again. And this is optical, right? This is optical. So I'm turning, yeah. so this is me shaking the desk that the PTZ camera lives on. And then I'm going to turn on optical stabilization and the same shake. <laughs> Just and it's doing really well. The, the biggest challenge you get into with optical stabilization is drift. You know, where it starts to just, it's trying, it's using things. And w with big, long box lenses, we sometimes see this kind of like it keeps going when you stopped. It moves a little bit. And, and so people, some people don't like to turn it on. But I think, I mean, you're just showing exactly why it makes sense. The optical stabilization, by the way, is way better than software because software, you'll see this motion blur going like back and forth because it's, can't, it's just fixing the image, but it's not fixing the fact that there was motion blur when it captured it. Nice. Thanks, everybody, for the continuation of questions. We're continuing with general questions for the next one, Mitch. Next up from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia, and here on our panel. Thanks, Mickey and the community. I'm using Video Pencil with no issues on Ventura. Anyone else have issues? Tony, what do you have to say about it? So uh, last night I had a celebration moment with Mickey and Ken Jones uh, because I, uh, wow. So over the past, uh, I'm going to say 72 hours plus, I was trying to figure out how to use uh, video pencil in the way it should be used. And I'm going to say that 
it probably was an issue of my original installation of video pencil in that I did not have the extension permissions that were needed. And so between Mickey and Guy and the community, Matt Parker, I did over the weekend, I was doing all kinds of things in order to try to get video pencil to work. So there was Memo Live, NDI. I mean, I was, it was all kinds of things. So last night after a conversation in after hours, Mickey and I went into a, a room. He took control of my computer. He went into terminal. He deleted all of the video pencil features. And then he installed the correct or proper link so that the permissions would trigger and I could install it correctly. So now I am using, I am using Indi, I'm using the uh, NDI source 1080p and loop back mode is on. And so you can see it depends. It depends. Well, still working on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it 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 does work. Yeah. And it's it is 1080p. And it was just such because of all of this hours and hours of going back and forth with Nemo Live and all of the other things that were involved. It was just a great celebration. And so no issues with the frame rate. It is working. And I was just wondering, was I the only one who was dealing with it? I doubt that seriously. You represent a lot of people who watch office hours, uh, as do I, who have skills in some areas, but don't have skills in other areas. And the fact that we have this community who's willing to step up and help you no matter who you are, what level you're at, and bring you along, I think is one of the most beautiful things about this place. Alex? Yeah, it's one of the, actually the things that I was pretty excited about listening to it. I, I listened to it last night and um, it is really, I would highly recommend, even if you're not going to do something on After Hours, it, it oftentimes becomes a really interesting place just to listen to what people are working through. And there was a big, long conversation about getting um, getting this working across a couple of different computers. And what is great is that once somebody here has figured out a bunch of the, the pieces, it means that there's there's resources. This gets back into that continuity thing that I was talking about earlier, is that because we're a persistent community that we're not really tied to where we work or going to school or whatever, where we see each other all the time over years, when someone learns it, now Tony's learned it and Mickey understands why it worked and why it didn't work and everything else, We that knowledge kind of goes through the entire community. So it'll be easier and easier for the folks that chose in this case not to do, uh, not to figure it out. and. Uh, down the road, they'll be figuring something else out ahead of us. And so people diving into things um, helps us, you know, helps all of us learn and get smarter together. So I think it's a, it's a, it was, it was really fun to, to, to listen to that last night. I would highly recommend just jumping in and just leaving your, um, I did it while I was making that AI meal, <laughs> while I was doing the, while I was making the AI meal, I was listening to um, the office hours and then working through that. It was great. So moving on to our next question. 
From Douglas Carmichael, in an article about SoFi Stadium's network, and there's the article link, it says 20 to 32 terabytes of data is transferred for one concert. Would it be a feed from the show, or is there more? Uh, let's start with Alex. Alex. Yeah, I looked at that article. I had a little time while everyone else was answering it. And and I, I think that what they're talking about is that's the overall transfer. So their entire network is IP in SoFi. So everything is, I, I think it's 2110, but it's everything is IP networked um, out in SoFi. And so what they're talking about is the connection to all the monitors. And there's 2,000 monitors in SoFi. The the transfer of, of content to any everyone's phones the stream, the cameras, the cameras are all running at 12G, so it's 12 gigs per camera. So just the cameras are probably a terabyte of that. And so so there's a lot of throughput that is going through that whole thing. So I don't think they're talking about the feed being that big, but it's the overall usage of, of, um, of, of data throughout the entire um, stadium. And it's pretty amazing. Courtney? Yeah, it's talking about overall use uh, to all the the data connections, the camera connections for network broadcast, as well as they have a Samsung screen in there that is 70,000 square foot of 4K information. <laughs> That's screen size, 70,000 square feet, the big oval that hangs in the middle of the stadium. It's double-sided, so it's got 4K images on the outside, 4K images on the inside, and it... Uh, it's really, really big, and that consumes uh, uh, a whole lot of data. I think it, they said it's consuming about 70% of its bandwidth is going to that screen, right? Wow. I'm assuming that when they turn that on, if they're looking at the uh, electric meter, they can see it speed up. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to the next question. Tommy Shads from St. Paul, Minnesota. What would be the cutoff point for an iPhone model for camera use going to an Apple TV into an ATEM Mini? Alex earliest one that i've done so i don't i don't know um i don't know what it actually is but the earliest one that i've used that i've seen that with is eight and eight so it may go earlier it's really i don't know what the operating system is that started airplay that it could be i think it could be as as early as six um but the earliest one i've used is eight and it's worked just fine there you go next question Peter John Goulden in Santiago, Chile uh asks what is causing the sink and stutter today in the show Hmm. I don't know if anybody else is noticing that as much as you are. Mitchell, you want to give it a shot? Peter, uh, no matter where you are in the world, your results may vary depending on uh, what your connection status is. So um, it's very likely it's something to do with between here and where you are in Chile. But um, I just took a peek at the YouTube feed and it looks fine at this end. Or it could be Alex's chicken soup. One of the two. Hmm. Courtney. It depends on how you're watching. If you're watching in Zoom, it's probably your connection. I'm not seeing any stuttering here, and I've connected over Wi-Fi. So uh, usually it would show up quite easily here, and I haven't seen any or heard any so far. <laughs> Alex, are you serving your soup in a Faraday terrine or something? Yeah, exactly. No, it, I, I just did a poll, and um, we, you know, it's not like a huge number of people have responded, but nine out of ten have said that it doesn't look any different than it does. So I, I think that you may have a connection. Um, some, I would definitely look at the YouTube stream um, and let us know if uh, you're seeing it on the YouTube stream um, for Peter. Uh, just see if it's on the YouTube stream or see if it's on Zoom. It could be a little bit of a connection issue on yours if it's Zoom. If it's on YouTube, uh, that might be a little bit more worrisome. So let us do let us know because we're always keeping track of that. And regardless, Peter, it's great to have you here from Santiago, Chile. Let's move on to the next 
Question. Next question here from Douglas Carmichael. If I wanted to build a multi-terabyte scale network to attach storage at home, would Seagate Iron Wolf SSDs be a solid choice? No pun intended. And Jason Bass is going to start us off here. Sure. If you wanted to be entirely SSD based, then yeah, that, that's a good place to start. As a rule, I generally recommend uh, divvying out between manufacturers so that if you end up with some sort of catastrophic failure rate or, or, or an issue with a controller board, as long as you've got similarly rated and similarly um, mean time between failures uh, drives, you're going to end up with with a pretty uh, with a product that has better dexterity. Also, um, if you want to pay for a full SSD rig, remember that if you're not using 10 gigabit Ethernet, you're wasting your time. Hey, Jason, is it still the case that you that people in the uh, drive space see batches come out of a manufacturing factory or something like that? Abs and they're absolutely. Not, they're not good for a while, then they repair whatever the problems were and they come back and are good again? Well, yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, the, the Google Drive survey, which I believe is ongoing, shows that there is no particular brand that is better than any other particular brand. Uh, as far as big no-nos go, you know, everybody has bad batches um, and and bad runs. Um, a big no-no, though, if you're going to end up with a mechanical drive, is stay away with sh stay away from shingled magnetic recording. That is um, that's the third rail for for a NAS or for anything hard drive related. Thank you for that. That's great practical information. Let's move on to the next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas asks, Apple has an AR, VR, or mixed reality headset that will be released very soon, followed by an augmented reality glasses. Predict when. Which of these interest you more? Alex. I'm more excited about the ecosystem that it will create than the actual devices themselves. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. We'll see, we'll see how the devices go. I'm sure that they'll be fine. Um, but what will happen around it? So I think that we're going to see AR and, and many other things happen around Keynote and Pages and, you know, things will pop out and so on and so forth. And for us as media developers, it's going to create a, I mean, it's, it's going to be a gold rush. You know, and so that's why we started talking about, we're going to be talking about LIDAR next week. It's why we're talking about photogrammetry. It's why we're going to keep on talking about, it's why I started adding graphics and we're going to keep on talking about 3D, even though not a lot of people here are as interested in it. And um, we're going to keep on pushing that down the path because for some of us, that's going to be an enormous amount of work. Um, I was just having a conversation yesterday about with someone that it's going to generate incredible amounts of demand for um, real-time 3D. And so um, probably more than anything that's ever happened ever. <laughs> so, so, um, and it, and it's going to really revolutionize how we do that with our phones and everything else. And so, um, that's what I'm excited about. I, the, the devices, yeah, we'll see. I'm sure. They'll be fine. Courtney. Well, I'm more of a Grinch on this topic. Um, uh, I think, uh, VR and AR is, you know, it's great to sample and look at and go, Oh, that's really interesting. That's really cool. But it has yet to find a perfect application where, it's, uh, you know, there's a couple of vertical market applications, you know, such, you know, repairing jet engines or, you know, stuff where they need to superimpose the image of a device over the device itself to show you where to plug stuff in. Uh, you know, so it has limited applications there as a consumer product. I don't think it's ever going to take off. Uh, you know, HoloLens has been around for, you know, what, 10 years now. And uh, they're scaling back on that. It has never taken off as a consumer product. And it and they've sold some to the military for special applications, but 
I don't see it ever taking off in the, in the consumer market uh, because of the, the limitations. You think of uh, augmented reality and a, and a pair of glasses that go on your, your face that um, superimpose an image over what you're looking at. Locking that image to what you're looking at is extremely difficult because you got to track your eyeballs uh, as well as your head movement and calculate all that. And you got to fit that uh, brain that's going to do all that calculation into something that can be worn on your head and run off batteries. And it's just, it makes people sick if it's not in perfect sync. And so there's there's too many gotchas involved in AR and VR to make it take off, I think, as a, as a you know, a successful consumer product. It's John interesting Preto. to talk about. John Preto. I get to follow the Grinch. I was hoping he had some Grinch music playing in the background <laughs> or something. I, I live down the street from the cat dealership and, and they've been using there in the service department for the AR for the for their service manuals with you know limited was somewhat of success. But I'm I'm much more optimistic than than Courtney is. I just don't think they have the horsepower yet to to pull these off to do it right. But when Apple does it, it should be a fun ride. We'll see. Now, if you take AR and VR and you add AI in it, well, you got a three billion dollar valuation company right there. Jason Beige. <laughs> uh, um. In the last year, it, well, no, 2021 and 2022, I would say it's made my company maybe forty, forty-five thousand dollars. So I think you know that this this thing that that Alex is talking about, this this push in work, is is absolutely there, and it doesn't necessarily need to be the thing itself. It's the development of the thing as the part of a larger whole. For example, using USDZ as part of a service manual um, is is a great example, and and some of the work I can't talk about, but yes, it's uh, it's it's real and it's here. Alex Lindsay, yeah, it's still pretty expensive to develop for. I, I will say that I've seen lots of glimpses of this. I've worked on lots of AR and VR projects, and um, there are things where you go, okay, this is going to be huge. Um, it's not ready yet. Our, our acquisitions tools aren't ready yet. This isn't ready yet. But we, we want to be careful not to mistake the tools aren't ready yet to it's not going to work. Um, you know, we, Google had this thing called Expeditions, which was amazing. You have little, um, you put up a little, you, little cardboard, you put the phone into the cardboard and you put it up and they could take you to places and they shot really high resolution VR video. Now, back then it was hard. This is 2015. So it was like way back. And they're kind of experimenting with that. In in other cases, um, you know, with the HoloLens, for instance, the stuff it did, it's done for, um, you know, a, a lot of engineering is you can walk into, they have these, and, and again, all of these things build off of each other. They have this, they have these dogs with little Leica um, uh, LiDAR, the, it's the Boston Dynamics dogs, and they, wa they walk through the work site and they, they can do it every night and just digitize the entire work site of whatever happened that day. And um, a engineer can put, pick up a HoloLens and just see it and walk through walk through what was there, and see it based on yesterday, or the day before, based against the drawings, you know that kind of thing. Now that's not a publicly available. I mean, that's not going to be widely available yet. But I can really see a future where, and, and again, I don't think it's we're going to put these on, and we will eventually. Some people will put them on for hours, but I think it's more of a let's pick this up and take a look at something. So if I can imagine in a history class, I don't. The mistake people make is like, we want to do the class in VR. I'm like, we want to have the teacher in VR and we want to have everybody capture it. And then you can put the VR and it's like, you're in the classroom. I don't want that. I don't want, I don't like being in the classroom when it's, when it's a real, a real place, <laughs> you know? So, um, but, but what is interesting is we're all in the classroom and I'm going to talk about, let's say, 
Gettysburg and Pickett's Charge. I want to take you there and have you see what it was like to be there at that moment. And when you put this on and, and you're only going to put it on for 30 seconds and you're going to see what the chaos was around that, or I'm going to take you to the Sistine Chapel, or I'm going to take you to um, these these um, great Zimbabwe, and I'm going to let you wander around in that area and see what it's like. And then we're going to come back and have a conversation about it, or we're going to bring people in over Zoom to talk about what the historical, or even have them interact with that 3D while you're in VR so that we can explain things, you little arrows and circles and, and that type of thing. And so I think that those are the things that I'm really interested in is people being able to um, feel like they're there and there is a, a reason to learn there, but I don't think it, at least at the beginning, we're going to be doing things where um, we put it on and we just sit in there and watch a movie. I don't find, I, by the way, movie watching on the Netflix app for a long time was the most popular thing on, on Oculus. Most people just like to put it on and just watch a movie um, in, in a big screen. And so it is used that way. I, I, I'm a little concerned about leaving, spending that much time in a, in a VR, I just don't know, we don't know what's gonna to do to the eyes, you know, um, so we already have problems with the phone, what the phones are doing to our eyes. So so I think that, um, anyway, so I think that those are things we wanna think about, but I think that as uh, putting them on and experiencing something and then going back to a conversation, is gonna be really powerful. One of the things that Oculus hasn't done very well that I think Apple will probably do better, is it's the putting on moment is really challenging because it has to do exactly what it's supposed to do right then. Like it can't have, I, you can't have novices sit there and have to hit something that they can't see to get to the thing that they need to get to. And that's the, been the biggest problem that we've had with the, the thing literally is just when you put it on, it needs to do what it needs to do or it needs to be voice activated to do it so that you don't have to, it's the it's a really uncomfortable interface to, to do that until you get really good at it. And that's been a huge blocker for, for being successful. Guy Cochran. Yeah, it's been a few years since I had one uh, actually purchased a HoloLens, um, the developer edition back in 2016. Uh, I have some friends that work at Microsoft and they were telling me that when the Mars pictures uh, first came that they were in a friend's garage and they were walking around on Mars as the pictures were coming hot off the press through this virtual uh, augmented reality HoloLens. So I was like, how do I get one? And he said, well, you got to become a developer and you could order one. So I ordered two. When I got one, I put it put it on here in my house, and uh, one of the apps that they had. This is again early edition. They had uh, furniture where you could move it around, and I was, I really saw the future when it was like, oh my gosh, you could see in the room, so you can walk through a house, and if you're furnishing it, you can see where everything's going to go, what size it's going to be, and then it stays there. Once you pin it, it stays there. So you're walking around, and that stuff stays there, and you're seeing all the angles of it. It's it's really amazing. So I let my daughter. I think she was about 14, 15 at the time, and. Uh, she played with it and I came downstairs the next day and my whole living room was just all this stuff. She put space shuttles and balloons and all this stuff all over the house. It was pretty amazing to see. But at the office, one of the things I liked about it was I could pin multiple web browsers. Uh, and I never did this on a plane, but just in the office, I had multiple web browsers. I think I had three of them. And it was the equivalent of looking at like an 11 foot screen, but it was just, you know, I could be in a plane uh, just you know, doing, I'd look like a weirdo touching all this stuff in the middle of the, you know, the invisible area in front of me, but it, it was very, very cool to have the one that I had, they did a teardown on it and actually had a SIM uh, slot built into it. Uh, the one uh, that I had, uh, you would have to destroy it to get into it because they didn't, they didn't uh, uh, open up the port, but in HoloLens 2, they have, so now it's 5G compatible and you can uh, 
you could be walking around at CS one year. I think it was 2017. I saw a guy walking around with the HoloLens. And I'm like, you're a dork. But he, he was walking around because you could actually record too. So uh, you can record and walk around and it records those augmented things. So I still have some videos of walking around my office where there was rain clouds and things as you're walking through that people had put and you just put on the goggles and you could see all this stuff. It's like graffiti that you could put wherever you want that's invisible. <laughs> And yeah, it's, it, I'm excited about the future. I'm excited to see what Apple does with this stuff. It's, it's really cool. Just amused that in some communities being called a dork is a slam, not here, <laughs> Alex. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that it, it it's going to be interesting, um, again, from an experiential perspective, I think there's going to be museums, for instance, that you just put these on. Everybody's going to have them. Like, it's like that little headset that they give you to, to go around the museum. They'll just put these on and you'll just walk around and it'll be like giving little arrows. And as you look at things and you, it'll tell you about those and it's kind of a personalized view. You're seeing things around you. You're still seeing people. You're not running into them. And again, eventually that can also be a virtual museum. We built a virtual museum in 20, probably 15 or 16 in our office. We had a and we had a motion capture system. <laughs> so we, we were putting markers, tracking markers onto the, the Samsung gear. And then we were, um, we were basically allowing you, so we could track where you were and we could also track what you were looking at. And then we used Unity to build a, literally we, we took these little um, Shona sculptures, scanned them and, or used photogrammetry to, and put big ones and put them on little boxes like you, and you could walk around. There's a 30 by 30 space. And you could walk around and it looked like you were there. Like it's, you know, it was, and that was, that's seven or eight years ago. And you, it was as if, and we could build a whole environment for you to just walk through and experience Shona art um, without, um, you know, without, without actually ever going to a museum. And I could, uh, what I've envisioned there was the possibility of just opening blank spaces that are different museums, you know, and we're having, just like we might have the King Tut, to, you know, thing going on a tour, you could tour all those blank spaces at one time. And just have all, you know, it could be a 30 by 30 or 60 by 60 space. And people are just wandering through, walking through it. There's nothing there um, except that there are, you know, you're wearing AR and walking through it and getting information. And as the processing power increases, you know, these, the rumor is, and I, I don't have any, any information <laughs> about these, these AR and VR to, um, things that Apple's working on. But I have read in, in the rumors that they're, they're talking about putting M chips for each eye you know, like on, on it. So we're talking about an incredible amount of horsepower um, that these things will have and the, the potential of, you know, being able to display 20, 30, 40 million polygons will be a big deal. <laughs> so, and, and so I think it's, we've also used them in, we've experimented with sending clients. We build something in SketchUp and we send clients the VR and they, and they literally can see what their stage is going to look like for an event. And they can say, oh, no, no, I don't. They make decisions that you can't make until it's built. And that's really important because when you're standing there, you go, oh, the stage isn't high enough or the stage isn't this. But once it's built and you realize that that wasn't going to work, you're, you're toast. <laughs> like, it's just going to be the way it is. That's a, a note for the future. And, uh, we'll, we'll make the next one better. And so I think that this is, um, it's going to be, it, it, I think the future is very exciting. I'm super excited about the demand that it's going to create for, for our, the kind of work that we do. I'm super excited about the, how fast we'll eventually be able to learn. Um, but I think that we'll, we'll still have another five or 10 years of of it figuring its way out. I mean, you know, TV, you know, video looked really, video on the web looked pretty stupid 20 years ago. <laughs> it was like, not like that, isn't it? No one is ever, ever gonna want, want to watch it. People literally told me that. People are never gonna watch that on the, on their computer. Whole new meaning to the phrase, future's so bright, I gotta wear shades. Courtney, yeah. you wanna wrap this up real quick? 
Yeah, I got two words for you. Bah humbug. <laughs> In the spirit of the season, oh, we we're go. on brand here. All right, we got to go to the next question. We've still got another 10 to get through here. Go ahead. Tony Mobley, Newton, Georgia, asking, I am using Shoot Pro app instead of Filmic Pro for my 10s Max. Is anyone else using Shoot Pro? Alex. Yeah, I use Shoot Pro. I, I also use Filmic Pro, and I'm paid for the upgrade for it just because it's a, I don't see those apps as interchangeable at all. Like to me, they are comp two completely different worlds. Filmic is, I want to, we've been using Filmic as a live output. And we, I actually think that the legacy Filmic that's out there will still do, we were talking about this last night. I think Ronnie actually was talking about this. The, the legacy Filmic will still do what we've been using it for, which is a live output in there. So you can still use it for what we've been using it for. I, um, but Filmic is really like, if you're going to do, you're really going to use your phone for an actual production and capture stuff. Filmic is the only app out there really that does that. And so I think that's why they were able to move the price because they were like, well, we want to focus on that market, that high-end market and not focus on the on um, the wider market. And so I think that that, that will make sense for them. Um, but I think that Shoot Pro is a great app and that's the one I probably use day to day. But Filmic is like, okay, I need to shoot something for a production. Oftentimes that's testing the iPhone for something. Uh, I open up Filmic and use it for that. All right, moving on to the next question. Alton Christensen from New York, New York. I don't suppose there's an easy way to add the after-hour Zoom feed to Dashmaster 2K from here to record. Alex? I probably wouldn't stream or externalize um, the after-hours discussion um, to a third party. So that probably won't happen anytime soon. We are building... We. Wansi Robles has built an app that I've been testing and works great. And so we're going to hopefully get that, roll that out over the next couple of weeks that you can listen to office hours. There could be a way that at some point we verified people and let you listen to after hours, you know, on that app. Um, but I have to think through a bunch of things. I just haven't made a decision about it, but that, that could be a possibility somewhere in the future where if we know that you're in, dis, you know, like use it as a discord identification or, or some kind, or you're already registered to after hours or, you know, like we already have a way to identify that you are part of our community that potentially you could listen to it through this app only. And then you could just hit, you could open it up, hit a button and just be listening. Um, and so, and then that would, yeah. So that's, we're thinking about that stuff, but I, I haven't made any decision yet, but we're not going to stream after hours to a third party system ever. There you go. Next question. Matthias Utila from Helsinki, Finland asks, I need to control Mac Mini M1 with an A10 Mini remotely in our office building. I am completely new to this. What solutions should I start looking at? And how much is it software and hardware also need to take the consideration of office building, IP, firewall, et cetera? And Grant, uh, Guy is going to help us out. Yeah, I'm not a total expert in this, and other people probably have a better solution. But the one that I have used that works is that little box from Data Video called the BB1, and it creates a little peer-to-peer -peer VPN. So it's two hardware boxes, and when you plug one in on one side, and you plug the, like I plugged a um, a camera and this controller inside of the camera at the far end and I had the controller at the other end and I could control a camera that was down in California, even over cellular. So once, once they uh, were synced, I could plug that little black box anywhere to a hotel room and I had complete access to that network. So it made it super simple, like almost idiot proof. There was just a cloud key number, like an API token that you paste in and that once it identifies it, it's like 350 bucks and then 20 bucks a month or something like that. But so it's not, it's not cheap, but it, it works and it's, it's 
fascinating to be able to kind of show or see your devices change um, just through through a, a little black box. I mean, it's pretty amazing, but look it up and and see how other people have used it on YouTube and you'll see what I'm talking about. But I'm sure fancier stuff exists with Cisco and then you got to get your propeller hat out there, whereas the, the DV Cloud solution just works. I got to get a new battery powered propeller hat. Uh, oh, Courtney, you wanted to weigh in on this before we finish up? Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, if you're on within the building, you can be on the same, just talk to the IT department, make sure you're on the same network and subnet, and then just use remote desktop uh, to go into your Mac Mini and be running the ATEM software on the Mac Mini to control the uh, ATEM uh, over the uh, remote desktop. Or you could use the uh, software itself on your local machine or on a tablet. Uh, there's also software that'll run on iOS, so you could take an iPad or an Android tablet. And um, there are versions of software that control the uh, ATEM over Android or, or uh, iOS. So um, and as long as the uh, software from Blackmagic can see, can find it on the local area network. Now, if you're talking about going offsite to, you know, the wide area network, then that's more of a problem. You have to use VPN. But you should be able to talk to it over the local area network. And as long as you're not sending too much uh, you know, live video back and forth, you might want to monitor it. So, you know, using a remote desktop would, would allow you to hook up to any PC or, or Mac mini into that Mac mini uh, and control it remotely. Dias, hope that helped you. Let's move on to the next question. Dave Burke in Alexandria, Virginia is asking, I have a MacBook Pro and other video sources connected to a display using an HDMI switch. But often when I switch the display to view my MacBook Pro, the display won't recognize it as a source. Any ideas on how to force them to notice each other? Uh, no one has raised a hand on this one. I'm suspecting it may be some sort of raster problem. Uh, Alex, what are your thoughts? You got to lock the, e e the EDID. <laughs> so you have to get something that basically says, um, a lot of them can say, just copy this EDID. What's happening is, is the, 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 the Mac Pro is going, what do you want? And, and, the, and the display is going, no, no, what do you want? And they just get caught up in it, never, never land. And so um, locking it and saying, this is what I want. So you can either define that or you can sometimes just replicate it and say, I'm going to go to this and this. And, and that's assuming that both of those monitors want to do the same thing. Um, they, they may, if they're different, but it, it, it could be just a confusion of negotiation. I know I had a lot of trouble with not being able to see screens with my Blackbird 8x8 HDMI until I really went into the software and said, I'm gonna replicate this monitor and force it to, you know, like I'm gonna, or I'm gonna set it manually. Of this is what I want from my Mac and the Mac then knew exactly what to do. It was, it's when they're both um, negotiating that it gets locked up. Fair enough, Courtney? Yeah, Alex covered it pretty well. If you have multiple items uh, set on a switch, they all have to agree on a common uh, resolution and frame rate and uh, once you get them all to agree on a resolution and frame rate then that would con uh, that would create a consistent edid so it wouldn't have to renegotiate every time you switch from one to the other and the problem is like alex said that the, the uh, as you switch the computer is going to be put online and try and renegotiate to a different resolution depending upon the monitor so make sure all the monitors are the same resolution and can handle the same resolution and frame rate and uh, then it's good to get a box that uh, has a persistent EDID that will read the EDID from your primary monitor and give that to your computer. And, uh, and then you have to make sure that the other monitors that you're switching to also support that same resolution and framework. All righty, we get to my favorite question of this last stretch. Go ahead, Mitch. 
John Clark, London, UK, asking, what happened to Guy's background? Why the change, and what are the advantages? Can he share his setup? It looks great, Guy. Well, tell us about it. Thanks. Yeah, I've been wanting to get back into doing more of these YouTube videos, these tutorial type videos, uh, not just uh, for externally, but for internally. And so I wanted to have just a nicer look. And after I had this big crash that happened uh, in the hallway. So basically the last two years I've been coming in office hours in a hallway and it was always very, very cramped. And so um, I had the opportunity to move down to the living room downstairs, which is basically this. So um, that's a real fireplace, real Christmas tree. Uh, my dog's toy down there. Um, yeah. So the, the dogs are I don't know if you can see the dog in his bed down there, but basically there's an aperture key light. There's a, a red Komodo in that teleprompter right there. So that's what I'm looking into right there. There's an Ergotron desk with a Wacom tablet, Mac Mini M1, vMix running on a Alienware down there. There's a Rodecaster, then that LG quad monitor. But yeah, it's the it's really the lens that's uh, giving us this look. It's not even an expensive lens. It's a, it's about a six hundred dollar lens. It's the Sigma one point eight. I have it running at about two two or two two point two. And so then I've got a, a key and um, hair light, and then the blue back there is a background light uh, from uh, Nanlite. I think it's the yeah it's the mix panel one fifty. Then there's just some Christmas lights that I found. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll clear out the Christmas stuff, obviously, after Christmas, and it'll be, go back to this other look that I had that uh, was looking more more uh, just modern and traditional. But yeah, the, the reason being is to create more content and have it look stellar. So I'm, I'm getting there. I feel like I think it looks I fabulous. The fireplace yeah. is just big thumbs up. Alex, we just keep on trying to one up each other. Like it, this is like it's it's good. it's a very dangerous thing to you know for for the panel because it's just like okay like what because I love the uh, the bokeh on the lights just looks so nice and so so I think that and the contrast there so it, it has me thinking again like I think we just keep on feeding off of each other of like oh that looks really good so um, but really looks real really good yeah really good Courtney. Thanks. Yeah, I think it's beautiful, and and the fireplace is a great warm touch. A real fireplace. Most people would put a you know a monitor back there playing back the fire, the uh, fireplace video on it in a loop. Uh, but I wonder, you know, when you have the Christmas party or the cocktail party, how do you keep your guests from putting their eggnog on top of your prompter screen or your anything any horizontal surfaces that are well, we have there? other places that we could go. So th this is now my set. I've cordoned it off. So this is this is my area. So I've, I've taken it over. If I have Perfect. to move, I'll, I'll move it. But yeah, generally, I'm just going to have meetings other places. I like it at the. I mean, it's so crazy that we have a 19,000 square foot facility in uh, an office there, but it's so loud that working from home. I mean, it just, I would have never done this in the past, but so COVID actually was a bonus here because now I could use a real modern set and we didn't have to pay a bunch of money to create a set. Um, we just, I'm just using my real fireplace and real, uh, real living room. So it, it's, it's cool. And we got a, we got another living room that the kids can play in still. So that one's theirs. This one's mine. You're taking over the the the, the the hallway. Proved the model. Proved the model. Yes, and now now right. now we're now 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 guys settling in. Um, next question time. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California, asking, "What is the most cost-effective way to play with NDI just to get used to the concept of using it as an SDI replacement down the road?" Ronnie's going to help us with this one. Ronnie. Yeah, I think the most cost-effective way would be just to download NDI tools um, from, uh, you can Google it, it's NDI.tv, I think, and uh, get that installed. And then uh, you could get uh, you could get the NDI HX app on your phone and uh, 
and just just see how that video travels. I mean, uh, Wi-Fi is not the best transport system for for uh, for NDI, but that will get you into it just to just to see it working in front of your eyes, and then go from there. I mean, uh, if you have an Apple TV, uh, there's a there's an app on there uh, that you can uh, that you can trans transmit uh, video onto, and then hopefully um, OBS is is right around the corner with uh, with an official release for. Uh, NDI, where you could play with that for free. So th- those would sort of be the cheap and free options. Fair enough. Thank you, Rami. Uh, let's move to the next question. From Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana. What's the best way to film small explosions? A local artist is going to explore shaped, charged blast art, and I want to film the process, and I'm unsure of the minimum good high-speed frame rate at good resolutions. Go ahead, Mitch. Dive in. I love this stuff. Put your goggles explosions. on first. Um, the uh, we did this some years ago uh, over at Artbeats uh, with Phil Bates, and uh, we shot a high feet high speed film. Nothing like a high speed film camera uh, uh, ramping up because like that, and we were shooting the explosions from below, so that if we had these flame um, explosions, that they would uh, it, they would spread and have a very interesting uh, look to them. If you shoot it from the side, it's a little harder. But from below or above, I guess, uh, it uh, it works a lot better. Today, I would use a Phantom. Hmm, there you go, Alex. Yeah, the Phantom's pretty much the, the way to go if you can. Um, that That's still the rental on that is pretty high, so it might be more, you might, might, might be cost prohibitive to do that. Uh, I would consider 240 frames a second kind of the minimum. Um, and you can get... If you rent or know somebody with a Blackmagic 12K, you could probably um, get that at 4K resolution um, at, uh, um, at at 240 frames a second. We probably have a couple people here. I'd maybe bring it up in, in off, you know, someone might lend you one if you're promised to be careful you know, and, and, and keep it behind something when you're gonna blow something up. Um, but, uh, but that might be um, something to explore there. Um, it'd be really interesting to see what that 240 frames looks. You, you know, obviously the Phantom is gonna give you up to, I think it's 10, 10,000 frames a second. So it looks really cool. Um, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to see what they're using for the shape charge, whether they're using Decord or whether they're using something else that's, um, if they're building it themselves and you want an effect as well as the impact, um, uh, if, they're, if they're using something like black powder, they may want to add a bunch of naphthalene, uh, which is moth, used to be mothballs. I don't know if it's still mothballs, but naphthalene um, makes the explosion a lot more gooey. And so it, uh, it, it just looks, uh, it looks more full. Uh, when you do about a 60-40 mix of uh, naphthalene. Mitch, you had a final note? Yeah, if you're renting, don't sign the waiver on the insurance. Make sure you take the insurance. (laughs) (laughs) Might want to get a writer for that. Uh, Just saying. Courtney? uh, And get you a sheet of polycarbonate to put it in front of the camera and the camera operator so that you don't have uh, little stray pieces of shrapnel hitting the lens or your personnel in the room uh, yeah, it's safety, not good for coding so. safety first and uh benzoyl peroxide also works good uh, uh, in addition to the naphthalene to make the explosion you know really thick and dense and love a little little sparkly thing uh alex fine fine and as a, as a disclaimer we're going to back up and just let you know that if the artist isn't already a certified um someone that's certified to use explosives uh, then you should find somebody who is so someone even if it's going to be a little bit of art um, and even if it doesn't look that big uh, having some having a professional um, be there um, to tell you what to do even with work with the artist is um is a, a must you know you can find somebody to do it um a, a, you know it, it doesn't have to be a film uh 
you know, expert, but it does have to be someone that's going to keep you in the legal um, straight and narrow as well. Cause they can, you know, if they're certified to do it and then you have them manage it. The artist tells them what they want to do and then they make it happen and they make sure that you're protected and they make sure that you're in an area and they think of all the things that you're not going to think of. Uh, there are so many ways that explosives can go wrong. <laughs> so, so they're, and there's how they're stored, how they're kept, how they're put together when the, you know, when the, the systems are put together. And if you're an artist or you're a film person, you may, you know, people went through a lot of training and they spent a lot and then oftentimes many, many years of this and things still go wrong. So definitely look for um, somebody in construction or film. Um, I know I have a friend that's in Minneapolis or used to be in Minneapolis anyway, that, that has that certified. <laughs> so, so anyway, but look for someone who's certified for pyrotechnics um, and uh, before you, um, before you take this on. All righty, next question. And it's from Douglas Carmichael asking, since I started using Shadow with the Power Upgrade, which uses an NVIDIA RTX A4500 card, I've been exploring with several video applications. So far, I've been exploring Touch Designer and Resolume. Any others you'd recommend? And Guy Cochran's going to help us out, Guy. Yeah, I uh, upgraded to the premium as well. And uh, what I've loved playing with is uh, vMix. And to get video into vMix from afar, um, you can download SRT Mini Server. There's a trial version of it. And basically, if you run that in proxy mode and you open up your phone and with an app called Lyrics Broadcaster or OBS, you can shoot an SRT feed up into that shadow. And it it's pretty cool to, to play with. Uh, the other things I would recommend... Uh, uh, Unreal Engine would be fun if you're on a Mac and you haven't had a chance to play with some of these PC things. Like my dad bought a $3,000 laptop to play Flight Simulator. With your $600 Mac Mini M1, you could now play Flight Simulator on a computer that's not yours. So uh, those are a couple of things to play with. Okay, fun. Let's move to the next question. Arshid Trivedi from Daytona Beach, Florida asks, what would you say is the best boom or mic stand solutions for on-the-road setups? Mitch Hill's going to start start us out. I would uh, start with the Matthews, and uh, if you need to do something inexpensive, uh, the KTEL brand, I believe, has some. They're pretty cheap. And Alex? KTech. It's KTech. And... Um KTEL records. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, but KTEC is the, uh, is kind of, I don't know, they're pretty much the standard for, for this kind of thing. Courtney can correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, that's what we see the most. That's all I've had for, um, um, for a long time, but of course I, I met Brenda a long time ago. So, so, you know, at, at, at NAB. And so it's kind of like, you feel like, you know, somebody over there that, that's, um, uh, uh, there to, that, that, you know, that you can talk to about, about those things. And so, um, anyway, but, uh, uh, K-Tech is, the, in my opinion, the way to go. Courtney? Yeah, K-Tech for uh, fish poles, which is what you're talking which is a boom, uh, microphone boom that is held and operated by someone, not really put on the uh, stand on the floor. Um, and I knew Manfred Clemmy, who was the K in K-Tech. <laughs> uh, well, the, well, the thing is, is even if I'm, even if we're, I mean, it can be operated, but they they make a hook. What we use is that they're, we have a C stand. Right. A hook for a fish pole. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hook for a fish pole. And we, and we, and it's a, it's a funky looking hook. Um, it is, it goes over under. And so it just kind of locks in and um, we've used those in a lot of different places. Yeah. I All also right. make, uh, I also make the good sound uh, 
boom man and a pocket boom man. I don't think I have one around here today. Well, you, Courtney <laughs> makes these? What? What? Yeah, what yeah. They're sold through uh, Location Sound and through True Audio. What are they? No, it's just a, a 5 eighths to 3 eighths inch adapter that goes on the top of any 5 eighths inch stand. So you could use it on top of any C stand that adapts any microphone connector, which is 3 eighths, 16 threads to 5 eighths top. And Everyone should have one in their kit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, what is it called again? Pocket, the Wait, what is it? The pocket, the good, pocket good sound microphone to C stand adapter is the technical word for it. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll good sound microphone to C stand. Yeah, I manufacture. I yeah. smell the good sound stuff. Part. <laughs> I'm going to ask one Not question. To, yeah. What? No, uh, who thought of the 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 who thought of that the mic um, interface? You know, the the screws for the for mics. Who thought that was a good idea? <laughs> Who thought that was a good idea? Like the really, really fine, um, you know, super small, not very deep um, uh, mount. Oh, you're talking about the regular, the Atlas. Atlas. Oh my God. Yeah, that's that came not, up with that uh, with the five eighths inch fine that's threads. That's a classic Atlas. Yeah, yeah mine, mine avoids all that because it just slips over the top and has a thumb screw tied. Oh my gosh. It. It I, then, then, then you have the European version <laughs> with the, the. It takes three uh, the minutes to thread the mic. Two different styles. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and I, the part of me that wants to go back in time, that's the one that, like, you want to go back in time and the person who's about to send that patent in just go, no, 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 don't, don't, don't. Let's go, let's go out to lunch. And then when they're out to lunch, you burn the thing. I mean, it's just like, it's that, that's the nice way to say it. But you just want to go back in time and say, that, that's a horrible idea. Why don't we just use three-eighths? <laughs> yeah, you got to <sighs> screw it around for about 10 minutes. Is it all the way down? No, keep going. Oh, and it's just so easy. It's so easy to strip. You know, like, and like we have like one of the, the T-bones or whatever doesn't work anymore. Like it, it was a slightly, it's European, as Mitchell was saying, it's just slightly bigger and it just falls on and off. We have to tape it. You know, so, yeah. uh, well, let's move on to the next question. This is too sad. <laughs> Douglas Carmichael asked the weekend's recent tour, and there's a link to it, had a strong emphasis on set design along with audio video lighting. Has set fabrication become a lost art in the age of CGI dominant films and XR stages? Alex is going to help us. What a lot of people really like about it is the is this the experience, the flexibility. So you can change so many things so fast. Now it doesn't often mean that they haven't they aren't adding things and taking things away from the set, but it it is a um, it does give them an enormous amount of flexibility. And if you're a person watching, it's pretty impressive. If you are a um, trying to film it, it's really miserable. <laughs> so so it just depends on what you're doing with it. But but the um, you know, the, the, the LED really adds a lot to the, to the scene, you know, for, for, especially for a very large one, giving you that flexibility. Um, you can keep on changing it. And the big thing is, is that when you build a set and you go on tour, that's the set you're going to use for tour. Like you, you were at rock Lidditz, you figured it all out and it goes into a truck and it's going to be that way the whole time. If you have an LED wall, you're changing it every night. Like, oh, you know, it would have been really good if we, if we, if this thing came down and then this went over here and someone sits in Unreal or in whatever they're using and makes something new for the next day. And so by the, so by the time you get to the end, it looks a whole, it's an entirely different show and a better show than it was when you left the first day. So moving on, next question. Next question in from Roz McNulty in Vancouver, Canada. I need to know a new domain service. NetFirms is having trouble, and I have essential domains I want to transfer elsewhere. Ronnie. I have trusted many, many domains over the years to Hover.com. I was transitioning from GoDaddy years ago where they were upselling at every second. 
Uh, and it, Hover.com includes who is privacy on every domain. I use it for many clients. I trust them. Clean, simple, easy to use. Highly Mitchell Hill. Oh, excuse me. Mitchell. Yeah, I would use anything but GoDaddy. Um, I use network solutions. They're not the greatest, but they're a top-tier uh, ISP. They sit at the top of the uh, the stack, so to speak. Uh, Alex Lindsay. I agree. Anything but no, but GoDaddy. Net, net, network Solutions is the is the kind of the original, and they were um, and they're probably twice as expensive as Hover. Um, you know, to to do. And I have been using Hover for ten years, and I'm super happy. Like the, they are the best customer support. We do lots of complicated things with our our stuff, and there's always somebody that'll jump on the call and work with us and make it work. It's in my opinion, it's the best best service for domains. And Jason Beach. Yep, plus one for Hover. Okay, we seem to have consensus here on some good solutions, Roz. Hope that helps. Next question. Eric Billings from Washington, D.C. asked for Alex's photogrammetry tutorial. Do you plan on getting into the fitting algorithms or algorithms, or are those well explored and not worth tinkering with? Alex, can you help us on this? Uh, yeah, we're, we're going to get into all of it. <laughs> and so fitting for the fitting algorithms are probably a little further down the road, but right now we're going to get into just creating, you know, creating those, um, creating the geometry, but, but stay tuned. Uh, we're going to play with a lot of it. Okay. Next question. Gordon Lake, Los Angeles, California asking, can the Blackmagic Ultimat 12 be used with green screen zoom ISO feeds? Guy Cochran. Yeah, you you could, but you're going to be throwing away a lot of the color information. So it's not really meant to be a transport uh, for that level of quality because basically you're down to what six megabit or something like that. Really, you want an uncompressed signal to go feed in. So you would do it at the other side, ideally. You know, at the the head of the camera. So you, you would try to feed it through totally uncompressed. So if the camera's an SDI camera, an HDMI camera, you would pop it in that way. Do your your uh, uh, your composite and then feed it back out we're using one in our one button studio and the results right now are it's going to blow your mind when you get one it's 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 fantastic for the price i mean it's 495 bucks for the hdmi one and 995 for the uh hd version of the ultimate 12 with sdi which it's just it's mind-blowing because that was like 30 40 grand up to 70 for uh new stations and they all bought them i mean it's it's nuts so if you're doing a lot of green screen take a look at that ultimate it's it's a it's a worthwhile investment Alex? Yeah, I mean, I, I always have to say this every time it comes out. I, I had the Ultimate 11, which I paid $33,000 for, for 1080p 444. Um, and uh, and then it was like the the 12 came out and I couldn't quite get over the price. You know, I was like, oh, 15,000 all in to do this is a little too much. At the price that they're charging now, it's 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 a gimme, you know, to, to do those things. Um, I think that uh, the Ultimate is con the keyer in the, in the ATEM, um, Extreme or the A10 Pro or A10 Mini is significantly better than almost all the other hardware keyers you can get. And then the Ultimate takes it to a whole nother level as far as quality goes. I mean, you can key glass with water. I mean, it's just really, really impressive. And so, um, yeah, I would definitely uh, use it, but I would, as as Guy said, you want to use it on the front end, not on the back end of that of that stream. So if you can send those little things out to someone and, and have them key something, but just remember there's a lot to that key. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. We're working on a lab in the next uh, couple of weeks. Now, just a couple of minutes here left to go. Let's get to, oh, Courtney, do you have a real quick thought? Uh, Alex, Alex covered it uh, pretty well. This, the Zoom ISO compression uh, is going to mess up with macro blocking. It's going to mess up your key. So do it on the front end. Okay, next question. 
From Douglas Carmichael, in that same article about the weekend's tour, they mentioned the video director touring with a GV Corona switcher. What can the GV switcher do that a Constellation can't? Hmm, I'm not sure we have somebody here who knows both of those machines well enough. Yeah, yeah I thought Alex. Yeah, I'm not sure if it can do anything extra as far as features go, but it fits into a larger ecosystem that that is there. And it may, I mean, it has, um, I, I'd have to look, I, I'm not familiar with, I'm more familiar with the larger Grass Valley switchers. These are kind of the, the smaller ones. I will admit that that oftentimes Grass Valley is not as competitive on the bottom end as they are on the top end. On the top end, they just make these incredible um, switchers. On the bottom end, you always feel like they cut out a little bit, you know, a lot to it, um, but we'd have to look at the at this one specifically. Fair enough. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael again. My friend Spencer has a lot of Unity experience and currently develops Project Nocturne. There's a link for it. If I focus my efforts on learning Unity, would those skills still be marketable in the virtual production world? Alex, what do you think? Unity is pretty widely used. I mean, you know, I think that, so I think learning Unity is always good. Learning all those interactive tools are are useful. I would probably focus on the generation of the content for Unity. So, um, you know, the, how do you, how you build those 3D models? How do you do photogrammetry? Those types of things. That's applicable to anything that comes out in the future. And so I'd probably spend more time on on the uh, object generation than than on the in, inside. But Unity's, you know, if you know how to do that, there's going to be a lot of demand. We're, we're about to see an incredible spike in demand for Unity and, and Unreal. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas asked, the Golden Globes per Courtney are hot off the press. Do you agree with my picks? He has a link there. What stands out for you in TV and in film? Uh, Mitchell, you had some thoughts. I've got to raise my hand for Aubrey Plaza, my uh, neighbor. Um, she's on uh, White Lotus and doing a great job. Uh, she's also got another movie on Netflix. What is it called? Uh, the Somebody Criminal. The Criminal. Yeah. Alex Lindsay? I remember when I used to watch award shows. <laughs> Alex getting nostalgic on us now. Remember yeah. back in the days? Mm -hmm. Decades uh, ago. All right. Next question. Our last one for today. Last one in from Douglas Carmichael. Let's say a concert tour came through an arena or stadium and needed to feed show audio video to other spaces in the facility. Would most touring systems have an I.O. panel on the back of the rack or would it mean crawling around to plug it in? And Alex, huh? Help. Yeah, there's a there's a huge I/O rack on underneath it. So what these these systems do is the the broadcast trucks are usually typically a double expando or single expando, but underneath the expansion there is a door that usually flies open, and there's a ton of I/O fiber, uh, XLR, SDI, all kinds of things that are you know Ethernet. All those things are broken out there, and those are all routed to those things, and it's completely controllable through the through the router or um, through a, um, you know, you can, you can hard patch it as well. So, um, the, the lots of options there <laughs> to, to make that actually happen. Um, yeah, there's nothing, there's no crawling in a truck. Like it's, I mean, there is, if something goes horribly wrong, but generally everything is either hard patched, um, through, um, patching uh, panels, which there are just walls of patching panels to, to analog patch those. Um, and then there are, there's the, the router, which is typically something like a two. 256 or 288 by 288, something like that. 
So that takes care of our regular questions for today. Once again, we are uh, uh, grateful to everybody who participated in this. We've got a bunch of stuff's coming up. So let's see. Uh, Alex mentioned earlier today that the next couple of days, we're really going to do a focus on Q&A. Um, is tomorrow actually still going to be HDR formats and things like that? Yeah. Is it kind of yeah. a focus? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's just Wednesday now because we're going to put chat GPT on um, Friday. So uh, we didn't have that placed in there. We're going to place that in this. We're going to talk about uh, uh, AI text tools. Um, there and then, um, so just Wednesday will be a, a two hour. Wednesday is kind of our audio still, though. Mm -hmm. uh, our yeah. audio people hopefully will be by, so we'll mm -hmm. kind of head in that direction. Thursday, we're doing full frame freedom with Sony FR7. Greg Gibson and Chuck Wojak are going to be here for that. So tune in Friday, focus on QA as always, and that'll be the new one that Alec just put in. And, yeah, and by the way, the FR7 is super exciting. We're really excited to see what that camera can do and um, a lot of talk. Yeah, so we're gonna we're, we've been looking at that for months now and so um, we're gonna talk about it then hopefully we're gonna get noah on the next week to just come in on on i, I what i really want to just know what to just join us from office join office hours and be there for the hour with that fr7 i think that oh it's a very expensive Greg's conversation using it right now live and i'm getting the play-by-play -play in discord of some of the things that's going on so it's it, fascinating it looks so good i was telling him it looks oh, like man. these 40 to fifty thousand dollar uh, ENG cameras with Fujinon lenses. Wow. Uh, it looks better, you know, and wow. for 12 grand with that lens. I mean, you have to move the camera closer, but the preliminary results, uh, they're looking pretty good this morning. Yeah. Don't forget for educators, Saturday, evaluating educational software. So that'll be an exciting day for you. Sunday, the uh, introspection show. Let's see what else is coming up today. Zoom ISO testing still available 24-7. Don't forget about that. Uh, Ecamm with David on Tuesday. The Pay attention to the schedule for that Wednesday Stream Deck Lab. Uh, there's a reader workshop again coming up on Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific time. Conversations with Tony Moby behind the scenes and then Isidore worked with Al on Thursday. So all these things coming up. It's a busy, packed schedule here as we move into the holiday season and office hours. Thank you all, each and every one of you for coming today. Particular thanks to those of you in our producer core who asked the questions today. We couldn't do this without you. We also, of course, could not do this without this array of analysts who bring the expertise here and answer questions every single day. We're hugely grateful to all of them. And we will not forget all the people in the back end who work very hard to put the show on every day. They're going to be on the credit roll coming up now. So I'm wrapping it up so that you can see them because they're important. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow. It was a first. It was a first. Taking a version. Oh, look we... at that. Look at that. That, that. You just you had a Mitchell whisper sighting or listening right there. The deluxe traversal is 76,248 miles. Yay, team. And boy, are my feet tired. Did we break chat GPT? I don't think we broke it. I think <laughs> it's very popular. That's not breaking, that's iterative failure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks, everybody. See you tomorrow. The sun coming in. I'm having the same problem you have, Alex. Uh, yeah. You need... I'm going to black that all out next week. <laughs> My wife is, is very upset with me on the whole, like, you're going to do what?